Vikings, Skull Vikings, with a big playoff victory, coming in Adam Thielen with a clutch reception for the touchdown, oh yeah, oh yeah, let me just turn this music down, so I can say a proper hello, got my jams on full blast, thanks for joining me everyone, we are of course here to talk about the one and only Daenerys Targaryen, not football, but, you guys know I'm a Vikings fan, so I had to get a little something in here. And joining me on the show today is the one and only but all the bards say hello hello everybody um i was chuckling really hard because you started off in kind of like a swedish ish sounding accent and then it turned irish there at the end and i just it delights me just how bad really hoping we weren't going to put all that under the microscope gretchen <laughs> i but, can't uh, help it it's funny i was hoping with the music high that uh the, those little uh, cultural yep. inconsistencies would be uh, okay. Anyway, so is that a Jamaican accent? It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was like a little. I bit really of should stop. I'm not you know. good at doing any sort of serious accent. Only like ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous accents. But yes, let's. Uh, you know, it's all fun and games on the live show, but people are going to watch us on the replay and be like, "Come on!" Well, I clicked on this to talk about Danny, so let's talk about Danny. We are here to talk about the one and only Daenerys Targaryen. If you joined us uh, last two weeks ago for our first Danny stream, then you know we had a good time and we climbed up on our high horse and uh, we defended the character of one and only Daenerys. Actually, no, we didn't defend what well, kind of did, but I'd like to think that we took an accurate exploration into the character of Daenerys Targaryen. It just comes out as a defense because the show, let's say it, it did her wrong. I mean, that's kind of why we're here. If you're here mm -hmm. and you think that the ending of Daenerys Targaryen on the show was awesome, then you might have a bad time. Because uh, we're going to look in the books and we're going to talk about um, basically the foreshadowing and the character of Daenerys Targaryen and how it is not building towards Dana uh, Dany becoming a mass murderer. That's, that's the general context here. So, uh, Ball, say a couple words. Yeah, I know you were active in the chat last time and I know you enjoyed the stream. We've been comparing notes on Danny a lot because you've been working on Danny, but why don't you say a few mm -hmm. words about what you've been working on, and in particular, you've got that cool thing. Uh, you can you can mention the SW. It's okay. Oh, oh, Star Wars. You know, you're doing the yeah. Danny the Danny Ray uh, comparison. I am. Um, I'm writing a piece for the website that I am managing editor for, which is called The Fundamentals, and I am writing a piece comparing. Ray and Danny, and specifically the ways that both the Rise of Skywalker and Game of Thrones kind of did them dirty. I mean, clearly Danny is, is the worst. I mean, clearly she suffers more than Ray does. But there are some similar issues where the the scripting of them went wrong in the most recent Star Wars movie and in Game of Thrones. So I'm going to be writing about that. Um, things like you know, go crazy because bad blood, or it might be evil because you know genes. Hey. Um, or, like, the lack of foreshadowing for why should I be afraid that Rey would, you know, suddenly want to be a Sith Lord? She's never wanted to be a Sith Lord. Kind of like Danny's never wanted to burn King's Landing. So, yeah, it'll be fun talking about that. It's been, it, it's been productive. Yeah, it's pretty much as soon as you told me you were doing that, I was like, ah, oh, yes, I could definitely see some parallels there. So, mm -hmm. looking forward to that. And, of course, you're also um, gestating a uh, Dance of the Dragons 
uh, masterpiece, okay. <laughs> masterwork, if you will. I am. Uh, with the move, I have gotten less done than I uh, thought that I would, but I am going to be doing some work on Dance of Dragons and specifically comparing, well, not only comparing, I want to explore the dance leading up to hopefully the prequel being released and also talking about how I think the Dance of Dragons has got a lot of parallels to what we've seen in the book so far and could kind of give us an idea of where things might be heading for the conclusion in Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. So, yep. Well, I'm very excited for that, not only because of all the cool parallels to the potential endgame, uh, and you know that I have basically turned my channel into a let's figure out what the you know the book ending is going to look like given the clues of the show ending and let's figure out where it's where they've diverged and where we might be seeing tea leaves that we can make sense of so king bran for example we know that came from george i did a few king bran videos to figure out what that'll actually look like in the books be a little cooler have a little more magic a little more purpose for all that weird net knowledge and stuff and then with danny you know it's we've We've got even more work to do, really, because it seems like I think Danny's ending is is definitely more in the in the category of stuff that D and D came up with, um, and mm -hmm. that really shows when you do just what we're doing now and go back and look at uh, the stuff from her earlier chapters. And so we did a Game of Thrones last week. We had a good time. Lots of I mean, it's the first book, so of course George, like a good author, did a lot of the establishing work in that book. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the seeds are planted for what we're going to talk about today and in future books. Um, so we've got basically two large sections that we're going to deal with today. Um, Danny's A Clash of Kings arc actually has a lot fewer chapters than A Game of Thrones. He's only got five chapters, and they're basically in two settings. The first chapter, which is the biggest one, it's huge, is the entire Red Waste, uh, including Vase Toloro, that little abandoned city where they mm. take refuge in. And it ends with the three travelers from Karth appearing at the walls of Ace Talora, which of course are Quave and Zarzo and Daxos and Pyatpri the Warlock. And so then her second, third, fourth, and fifth chapters are basically all in Karth, um, and she's navigating the powers that be there. She has a whole chapter in the House of the Undying, and then a chapter to, to go home. So essentially what we're going to do is uh, the, main, the main topic that I found rising to the top of her Clash of Kings themes is the idea of magical destiny. In the first book, we were talking a lot about the idea of the dragon identity, what that means for Danny. And I honestly came into this reread thinking that there was going to be this, this conflict between the, you know, the fire and blood dragon identity on one hand and the Mysa protector identity. But as soon as we got into Game of Thrones, I realized that that's not the case and that Danny's dragon identity basically comes to the fore, first for inner strength and resilience, and then it starts manifesting as the desire to protect other people when she starts claiming uh, victims of war and, and calling them hers and, and protecting them. And that's going to carry over, obviously, all the way to her fifth book when she's you know, freeing all the slaves and they're calling her Mysa and stuff. So what we, that's what we saw in the first book, that Danny's dragon identity is largely tied to inner strength and the idea of protecting. And uh, there's also the other thing that we followed was the idea of what she wants and her concept of home. And we see that this starts off with the pure idea of the house with the red door, just a place of safety, lost, you know, represents lost childhood, just a door that you can close, go behind that door and it'll be safe and you don't have to worry about anything. She doesn't have that, it was ripped away from her, so that's what she wants. But gradually, that desire for home seems to become merged with this desire to retake Westeros. And so now she's thinking of home as Westeros, 
when before it was kind of Viserys's thing that he wanted. Um, and now she has sort of adopted that. And so in the second book, we're going to see that continue. We're going to see her idea of home and destiny and Westeros continue to sort of all merge as one. But the thing that I really want to focus on is what I'm calling magical destiny. Uh, because Daenerys, she is a chosen one figure. Like her and Jon and Bran are, are our three sort of like Christ-like figures. They have a lot of comparisons to various savior figures in mythology. Um, they've got last hero and Azor high symbolism the, the most strongly. And so uh, with Danny, she's the one who's, I think, most most cognizant herself of that destiny. Uh, she's got the prophecies laid on her. She's told she's the chosen one. She's told she's the last dragon. Her story starts off by, her, you know, she performs the miracle of hatching the dragons. And then she's going through every hardship and her sense of destiny begins to crystallize with this idea of I am the dragon and I'm going to take Westeros, but I'm also going to protect people and keep them safe. So that's the overview of what we're going to do today. Um, but before we get to the whole dragon destiny, magical destiny stuff, we're going to go with some of the, I guess you'd call low-hanging fruit, the more immediate, obvious concepts, which in this book uh, is primarily leadership and wisdom. Um, there's a lot of leadership that Danny has to develop in A Clash of Kings, and there's a lot of traps and snares that she has to navigate. So in the first book, we talked a lot about kindness and empathy. There's still going to be some of that in this second book, but she's taking on now the mantle of leadership, and so it's a lot of determination and strength, and those are the qualities that we're going to see rising to the top. And so uh, basically, uh, Ball the Bard is going to be here to read the quotes and add her two cents, those two things. Um, doing everything on my own definitely is a little bit, uh, it's a little much. I get no breath for air, and I've had, I've been developing some of these ideas with uh, Ball behind the scenes as we've talked about our overlapping projects, and so it seemed like a logical thing to have her on. So Gretchen, why don't you take us away with the beginning of Danny's first chapter of A Clash of Kings. This was no kindly country. They left a trail of dead and dying horses behind them as they went, for Pono, Jocko, and the others had seized the best of Drogo's herds, leaving to Danny the old and the scrawny, the sickly and the lame, the broken animals and the ill-tempered. It was the same with the people. They are not strong, she told herself, so I must be their strength. I must show no fear, no weakness, no doubt. However frightened my heart, when they look upon my face, they must see only Drogo's queen. She felt older than her fourteen years. If ever she had truly been a girl, that time was done. What we're seeing here is that Danny is tough, tough as nails, and she understands this idea that she's got to set the example both in courage and in kindness. And we see more of this when she talks to Jorah and sees how downtrodden he is. I will not lie to you. The way is harder than I dared think. The knight's face was gray and exhausted. The wound he had taken to his hip the night he fought Caldrogo's blood riders had never fully healed. She could see how he grimaced when he mounted his horse, and he seemed to slump in his saddle as they rode. Perhaps we are doomed if we press on, but I know for a certainty that we are doomed if we turn back. Danny kissed him lightly on the cheek. It heartened her to see him smile. I must be strong for him as well, she thought grimly. A knight he may be, but I am blood of the dragon. And so this is interesting because, you know, she's, she's superstitious and she puts her faith in omens when it suits her, uh, but not when it defies sense. And 
this is important because we're going to be following this idea that Danny kind of believes in her magical destiny, but we're going to be watching for like, well, is she getting carried away with it? And is she losing track of reality? And mostly it's, it's going to be the answer. No, as, as you might guess, but um, this is, so here's, a, here's again, we see another example of her basically setting an example of courage that everyone can latch on to. This city is dead, Khaleesi. Nameless and godless we found it. The gates broken, only wind and flies moving through the streets. Jiki shuddered. When the gods are gone, the evil ghosts feast by night. Such places are best shunned. It is known. It is known, Eri agreed. Not to me. Danny put her heels put put her heels into her horse and showed them the way, trotting beneath the shattered arch of an ancient gate and down a silent street. Shajora and her blood riders followed, and then more slowly, the rest of the Dothraki. Yet they found bones, too, the skulls of the unburied dead, bleached and broken. Ghosts, Eri muttered, terrible ghosts. We must not stay here, Khaleesi. This is their place. I fear no ghosts. Dragons are more powerful than ghosts. And figs are more important. Go with Jiki and find me some clean sand for a bath, and trouble me no more with silly talk. So this, again, I, what I'm pointing out is like, when the, you know, when the comet is pointing the only way that she can go, she's like, oh, yes, it's the comet, it's destiny. But when they get to the City of Bones and everyone's like, oh, no, we can't go in there, she's like, oh, uh, yeah, we're going in there. We, we need water. We have no other choice. And so she's, it seems like you know, there's, there's a little bit of belief and there's also a little bit of using people's belief you know, as a leadership tool. But common sense always prevails and courage also prevails. So not only does she sort of you know, poo-poo the superstitious idea of ghosts, she offers a little something to believe in. She's saying dragons are more powerful than ghosts. They believe in her dragons because the dragons, like, again, that's, that's her sign of magic, her sign of miraculous power. So she's navigating this pretty well. And what I would like to highlight is the idea of trappings of power. Okay, so this is another leadership bit that I'm, it's kind of funny to notice that Danny is, like, way out in front of John on this one. So Melisandre talks about the trappings of power in A Dance with Dragons, and we'll get to that quote in a second, but check out this one with Danny, basically using symbols of power to her advantage here. When Eri and Jiki returned with pots of white sand, Danny stripped and let them scrub her clean. Your hair is coming back, Khaleesi, Jiki said as she scraped sand off her back. Danny ran a hand over the top of her head, feeling the new growth. Dothraki men wore their hair in long, oiled braids, and cut them only when defeated. Perhaps I should do the same, she thought, to remind them that Drogo's strength lives within me now. So then, along the same lines, there's another quote, and actually, let's not even read this one. It's basically just her uh, having her handmaids garb her in the skin of the Harakar, the white lion, um, because her hair was bald, and it looks fearsome. And then the dragon perches on the shoulder and you can now picture instead of a bald skinny 13 year old girl she's a bald skinny 13 year old girl with a lion's pelt and a dragon on her shoulder <laughs> so these are you I mean, know, and that's pretty badass pretty badass yes get on it fan art let's go i'm sure it's out there actually i should i should yeah. go digging some good danny fan art for um like i said when i do a at the end of all these live streams i'm probably going to do a produced video uh, an edited down one and uh i'll go deep into the danny fan art well for that one then, so in her fifth and final chapter, there's one more Trappings of Power quote. Danny's hair is starting to grow back. She's just burned the House of the Undying. And so Jiki puts a bell in her braid to signify this victory. 
I don't have that quote. I may have it. Do I have an older version of Maybe, your script? Maybe uh, you might want to hit refresh. Yep. Sorry, folks. No worries. So it's, um, she says, I have won no victories. She tried telling her handmaid when the bell tinkled softly. Jiki disagreed. You burned the Meiji in their house of dust and sent their souls to hell. That was Drogon's victory, not mine, Danny wanted to say, but she held her tongue. The Dothraki would esteem her all the more for a few bells in her hair. So, again, subtle, but, you know, she kind of gets it. So here's, go ahead and read the Trappings of Power Melisandre quote. It was Jon Snow she needed, not fried bread and bacon, but it was no use sending Devon to the Lord Commander. He would not come to her summons. Snow still chose to dwell behind the armory, in a pair of modest rooms previously occupied by the Watch's late blacksmith. Perhaps he did not think himself worthy of the King's Tower, or perhaps he did not care. That was his mistake, the false humility of youth that is itself a sort of pride. It was never wise for a ruler to eschew the trappings of power, for power itself flows in no small measure from such trappings. The boy was not entirely naive, however. He knew better than to come to Melisandre's chambers like a supplicant, insisting she come to him instead, should she have need of words with him. And oft as, and oft as not, when she did come, he would keep her waiting or refuse to see her. That much, at least, was shrewd. And then later in the chapter is a little more of this. It was cold and dark beneath the ice, in the narrow tunnel that crooked and slithered through the wall. Morgan went before her with a torch, and Merrill came behind her with an axe. Both men were hopeless drunkards, but they were sober at this hour of the morning. Queen's men, at least in name, both had a healthy fear of her, and Merrill could be formidable when he was not drunk. She would have no need of them today, but Melisandre made it a point to keep a pair of guards about her everywhere she went. It sent a certain message. The trappings of power. So there you go. Like I said, I think it's kind of funny that Danny gets this right away in the first book, and John has to sort of be have it explained to him in the fifth book by Melisandre. Um, his, you know, John so he knows nothing. He's, he's a little slow, but that's cool. Danny, Dan, the point. I mean, just again and again, it's just impressive, right? She's so young, and she knows it. Like she just kind of instinctively seems to understand what it is that they do. Well, and a lot of it is because she observes. I mean, you see in a Game of Thrones that she's constantly observing her environment, so she noticed that the Dothraki valued the bells in their hair and bowed to strength, and so she understands what to protect. Because you have to think, like, she's trying to cobble together some sort of concept of leadership from very few pieces. Viserys showed very little, if any, leadership traits, you know, maybe determination, I guess, but other than that, you know, he didn't teach a lot. Drogo definitely had some leadership traits, but they're Dothraki leadership traits, which are only mm-hmm. some of those Danny can use, other ones she can't. Um, and so she's, she's putting this together as she goes. And uh, so she's figuring things out, and she's, she gets the idea that she's got to be strong for her people. Um, she's got to be kind to her people so that they you know, take the edge off. And she's got to look strong for them. And that's why the title of this one is I Must Be Their Strength. That's kind of the theme that emerged for me in this second book. So now we're going to get into specifically wisdom and perceptiveness. This is still really leadership that we're talking, um, but more specifically having to do with wisdom and perceptiveness. Because like I said, there's a lot of traps and snares that she has to navigate here. So when they finally come to the um, abandoned city of Vase Toloro, after wandering the waste, Danny shows some caution and wisdom. The next day, dawn broke as they were crossing a cracked and fissured plain of hard red earth. 
Danny was about to command them to make camp when her outriders came racing back at a gallop. A city, Khaleesi, they cried. A city pale as the moon and lovely as a maid. An hour's ride, no more. Show me, she said. When the city appeared before her, its walls and towers shimmering white behind a veil of heat, it looked so beautiful that Danny was certain it must be a mirage. Do you know what place this might be? she asked Sir Jorah. The exiled knight gave a weary shake of his head. No, my queen, I have never traveled this far east. The distant white walls promised rest and safety, a chance to heal and grow strong, and Danny wanted nothing so much as to rush toward them. Instead, she turned to her blood riders. Blood of my blood, go ahead of us and learn the name of the city and what manner of welcome we should expect. So, there you go. It's a little, it reminded me of, uh, actually, the story of Gideon, Gretchen. It was like, mm, uh, where Gideon right. judged the people who, like, drank the water in such a way that they could keep their eyes up for the enemy, and he kept those soldiers. Mm-hmm. Those were only one out of ten, and all the soldiers that, like, went down and slurped out of the river like a dog, <laughs> they got rejected. So, it's kind of like just that little bit of caution and be like, yes, we want to go and run and, and do this, but let's hold up and hold mm-hmm. up. Wait. So we got, uh, Danny. there's uh, this really clever plan that she comes up with once they're in Vestaloro. Uh, she comes up with a stratagem, if you will, to send the three blood riders out in three different directions while the rest of her ailing Kalasar rests up at Vestaloro. The next morn, she summoned her blood riders. Blood of my blood, she told the three of them. I have need of you. Each of you is to choose three horses, the hardiest and healthiest that remain to us. Load as much water and food as your mounts can bear, and ride forth for me. Ago shall strike southwest. Rajaro, due south. Jogo, you are to follow Shirek Kira on the ra- southeast. What shall we seek, Khaleesi? asked Jogo. Whatever is there, Danny answered. Seek for other cities, living and dead. Seek for caravans and people. Seek for rivers and lakes and the great salt sea. Find how far this waste extends before us, and what lies on the other side. When I leave this place, I do not mean to strike out blind again. I will know where I am bound and how best to get there. So, not bad for a half-starved 14-year-old. Danny is pretty good at improvising plans on the fly. That's something I noticed kind of throughout this book. She's got a few of them. This is a pretty good one, though. Um, so now check out the way that Danny, and this, is, this I really like, the way that she sets her people to doing constructive tasks while they wait for everybody to get back. So first we have Ricaro, who returns having found nothing. Danny gave him charge of a dozen of her strongest men and set them to pulling up the plaza to get to the earth beneath. If devil grass could grow between the paving stones, other grasses would grow when the stones were gone. They had walls enough, no lack of water. Given seed, they could make the plaza bloom. Uh, Ego didn't find anything either, but Danny still thinks of a task for him to lead. Danny thanked him and told him to see to the repair of the gates. If enemies had crossed the waste to destroy these cities in ancient days, they might well come again. If so, we must be ready, she declared. So the way she puts her people to work here doing constructive things, it seems a little bit useless or silly at first because it's unlikely that they're actually going to need the gates. Like whoever destroyed the city, it happened years and years and years ago. So it's, they're probably not going to need them. And they're probably not going to remain there long enough to harvest whatever they plant. But if you think about this, it actually there is some strategy here because first, you never know. I mean, perhaps they do have to stay there for a long time. Um, and the gates are the first thing that you'd want to fix. Uh, but more than that, really what's going on here is that these tasks have symbolic and therapeutic value. She's keeping her people busy when they might become hopeless. Think about feeling stressed out about a bigger problem and finding relief 
in like the Zen of like just cleaning your mirror or something like, I mean like a really big stressful problem where you're pacing your house and sometimes like, I'm just going to like do the dishes. Right. So this is what she's doing. She's keeping her people busy so that they don't stress out about the bigger problem. And even more so there's symbolic value of planting things and repairing the gates because this also sends the message that she's not just trying to survive, but also planning for the future. Like we're envisioning a time when these plants will, will grow and we can harvest them. And of course they say dragons don't plant trees, but Danny does plant trees in Marine and she plants plants right here in Vestalora. So I just think that's cool. What do you think, Gretchen? Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting also that by like the planting and the gates, she's also re-envisioning a different way of life for the Dothraki because the Dothraki don't live in walled cities and plant things. The Dothraki live a nomadic kind of life pillaging. And so she's starting a Kalisar with all the trappings of power of being a call, uh, which I think is interesting that she, it never crosses her mind that like they should be different for her because she's a woman. She's just like, right, I'm a call now. Like I will do all the things a call does even though I'm a woman. So she's doing that, but she's also showing them that her way of having a Kalisar is going to be different because she wants to give them a peaceful, settled life rather than the, like, either a life on the run, which they have right now, or the life, like, pillaging and raiding the way the Dothraki have. And I didn't even think of that till now, until you said, were talking. I was like, oh, that's really interesting that she's giving them a future that looks different from even what their experience has been. That's interesting. It hadn't occurred to me at all, but you're totally right. And it goes along with her willingness to change Dothraki culture when she was like, uh, no, we're not going to rape all the women. I'm claiming these one as mine and I'm keeping them safe. And if you want, if you want to have sex with them, then you'll marry them and have children and treat them with respect. And so she right. again is, you know, she's being, she's being resourceful. That's really what it is. It's like, they don't have much. And this continues when mm -hmm. they get to Karth. Like Danny is looking for an army and a fleet, like, She's starting from zero. If this is like Sim City, Westeros or whatever, she's got like 100 people and some horses and she needs to get to army and fleet. So she's got a long <laughs> way to go. And she's in Karth looking for whatever kind of help she can. She's going to the different powers that be in Karth, even the warlocks, to try to find something. So she's working with what she got. And actually, Ball, here's a free one for your Ray danny comparison. Mm -hmm. So Ray is a scavenger, right? Mm -hmm. And her role is kind of to collect the things that are good and let the other things go and make something new out of it. Right. Well, Danny is doing a little bit of the same thing. Like mm. she's in the sense that she's thinking flexibly and working with whatever she can find and making use of it. She's even working mm. with people who aren't perfect. Like even after she realizes Jorah has a creepy crush on her, she still continues to listen to his advice because it's useful. He's one of the only, nobody else has his perspective in her crew. And so, you know, when she gets to Karth, these are very imperfect allies that she's considering. But she does what, you know, and again, Slaver's Bay with the Unsullied. She's just trying to work with whatever she can. So I like the flexible thinking. Flexible thinking is really important, especially when you've got this idea that you should take Westeros with dragons, but it's kind of a trap and you're going to need to see through it at the end. It's good that uh, you have flexible thinking and perceptiveness. So Well... Yeah. And that's kind of if that's kind of the whole point of like talking about all the smart like Danny's wise, Danny's perceptive, like this isn't just about whether or not Danny her relationship to violence and dragons. Right. Because the way that I see this framed is that the true purpose of the dragons is to fight the others. And to the extent that she wants to be the mother of Westeros and protect the people of Westeros, it ultimately is going to mean fighting the others. 
And so what she thinks right now is that she's got to save the people of Westeros by sitting the Iron Throne. And so that essentially is a little bit of a trap or a false prize, which is what the Iron Throne represents anyways. And in order to see through that, we need somebody who is perceptive, who is cautious, who stops and reconsiders, all that stuff. So that's kind of what we're trying to track here with her personality. Right. Totally agree with that. Um, Joanna Espino in the chat said, it's difficult to see a world that has never been, which I think is a Danny quote from the show. But that kind of fits with what we're talking about here because what Danny is doing is giving her people a vision of what life could be like, even in a very small measure at this point. She's envisioning a future for them that they have never experienced and never lived before and making it participatory. Like, she's not just showing them. She's, like, having them engage with, like, this is how you do it. This is how you live this life. And whether or not she's thinking on those terms, it's what she's doing for them is, like, giving them a way to participate in their own transformation, I guess, and the transformation of their own culture and way of thinking. She's giving them jobs that will eventually, you know, over time would eventually shape the way they think of, like, oh, right, yeah, we we plant things. We build gates. We don't you know, rape and pillage, and we don't do that anymore. So I just think that's awesome. So good good comment, Joanna. And Right on. Thank you, Joanna. And as we go along, we're going to see there's a lot more. Danny continues to reflect on what it means to retake Westeros, how will the Dothraki act, how will the dragons act, and all that stuff. So we are coming to that. Now, one thing that really jumped out to me, Gretchen, when I checked out the, um, the scene where Danny arrives at the gates of Karth, is that I, I watched mm. the TV show version of this excuse, to try to like, grab me, some folks. Don't, don't you mean Kuarth? Kuarth. Kuarth. <laughs> to try to. Kuarth. So I'm looking for screenshots and I'm watching this scene. And Danny, they, they sort of deny her, if you remember in the TV show. And Danny has to like mm-hmm. make threats. Uh, she specifically threatens to burn their city down. And, and it's pretty much the first time she goes like 10 decibels. Uh, I will burn you down. I am the dragon. Blah, blah, blah. Now, in the books, in the books, it's totally different. Mm. She's in, she's invited right in. She doesn't make any threats, and um, she actually is sort of thoughtful and reflective instead. So, check out this quote uh, from the books where she is entering the uh, city of Carth. The Carthine lined the streets and watched from delicate balconies that looked too frail to support their weight. They were tall, pale folk, in linen and samite and tiger fur, every one a lord or lady to her eyes. The women wore gowns that left one breast bare, while the men favored beaded silk skirts. Danny felt shabby and barbaric as she rode past them in her lion-skin robe, with black drogon on one shoulder. Her Dothraki called the Carthine milkmen for their paleness, and Caldrogo had dreamed of the day when he might sack the great cities of the east. She glanced at her blood-riders, their dark almond-shaped eyes giving no hint of their thoughts. Is it only the plunder they see, she wondered? How savage we must seem to these Carthine. So I'm a fan of Danny's flexibility of thinking here because not only is she resisting being overwhelmed by the splendor of Karth, she's also seeing the Dothraki in a new light and shifting her perspective of the world as she sees new information. Um, She loves her Dothraki family, but she is not blind to their cultural flaws namely love of rape and plunder, as we discussed. And being aware of how you come across to people is really not something that we should take for granted. It's not something you can say about everybody. Uh, uh, Danny is constantly self-reflective and self-aware, and this is really just one example of many. 
So Zaru and Pyatt are obviously untrustworthy. Uh, Danny knows this. And yet there is, like I was saying, there's no shining paragon of honor, honor and truth waiting around to give Danny an army. So she's got to do her best to ascertain if there's some way that she can find resources here in Karth. She's neither blind and over-trusting nor overly suspicious to the point of trusting no one. So she's trying to strike that balance. And that's highlighted here as Jorah points out the obvious concerning Pyat Pri and Zarozo and Daxos. The exiled knight rode at her right hand as ever. For their entrance into Karth, he had put away his Dothraki garb and donned again the plate and mail and wool of the Seven Kingdoms half a world away. You would do well to avoid both those men, your grace. Those men will help me to my crown, she said. Zaro has vast wealth, and Pyat Pri pretends to power, the knight said brusquely. On his dark green surcoat, the bear of House Mormont stood on its hind legs, black and fierce. Jorah looked no less ferocious as he scowled at the crowd that filled the bazaar. I would not linger here long, my queen. I mislike the very smell of this place. Danny smiled. Perhaps it's the camels you're smelling. The Carthine themselves seem sweet enough to my nose. Sweet smells are sometimes used to cover foul ones. So Danny sees both sides of the matter, and thus she reacts to Jorah's suspicion by sort of doing a little bit of devil's advocate and reminding him that, hey, we need allies, and we've got to explore all of the possibilities. Um, she actually does do a good job of heeding Jorah's advice when it is sensible, even if she is currently angry with him, as we'll see in A Storm of Swords. And Jorah's advice about perfumes covering foul odors is pretty good. And even though Danny seems to shrug it off, she actually doesn't. In fact, she actually sets her blood riders to guarding the wing of Zaro's mansion as though they were in enemy territory right after this conversation with Jorah. So she's seeing both sides of the coin. And in her third chapter, there's a similar moment as she deals with various factions of power in Karth. She's thinking of Jorah. He distrusts everyone, and perhaps for good reason. So even though she poo-poos his suspicions and at times paternalistic nature, she still considers what she's saying and looks for wisdom. So in other words, she's taking everything with a grain of salt while still being open-minded to opportunity, which seems like a pretty good balance to strike. Myself, I'd probably be too suspicious to talk to any of these people in Karth, because, yeah, I don't, yeah, these are shifty folks. In any case, Danny's wisdom and caution extends beyond simply setting a watch. This is really impressive right here, this passage. Go ahead and take this one. We have only seen the parts of Karth that Pyat Pri wished us to see, she went on. Rajaro, go forth and look on the rest, and tell me what you find. Take good men with you, and women, to go places where men are forbidden. As you say, I do, blood of my blood, said Rajaro. Sir Jorah, find the docks and see what manner of ships lie at anchor. It has been half a year since I last heard tidings from the Seven Kingdoms. Perhaps the gods will have blown some good captain here from Westeros with a ship to carry us home. The knight frowned. That would be no kindness. The usurper will kill you, sure as sunrise. Mormont hooked his thumbs through his sword belt. My place is here at your side. Jogo can guard me as well. You have more languages than my blood riders, and the Dothraki mistrust the sea and those who sail her. Only you can serve me in this. Go among the ships and speak to the crews. Learn where they are from, and where they are bound, and what manner of men command them. Reluctantly, the exile nodded. As you say, my queen... So not only is this wise, it shows that Danny doesn't think like a pampered member of royalty. I mean, this isn't something that Viserys would have done. He wouldn't even think to do this because Viserys never empathizes with people that he sees as below him, which is pretty much everyone. And he never tries to see the world from other people's perspective. 
Danny and Viserys both have the sort of real-world experience that should bring societal wisdom, such as we're speaking of, because Viserys didn't grow up pampered, obviously, but he didn't, like I said, identify with people that he saw as below him. And so we can see that Viserys is very foolish, whereas Danny is wise and perceptive. She knows that the Carthian are putting on a show for them and that the lower levels of society may not be so, you know, they might not glimmer so brightly as the rich parts that they're being shown right now. And so she's like, hey, we got to go find out what the other people are saying. What's the word on the street? What's the ugly side? What's the truth here? So she's also mm -hmm. getting the knack, and I like this in particular, she's getting the knack of skillfully standing up to experienced tough guys like Jorah without being imperious or haughty. Imagine that. She uses mm. skill and, like, uh, tact instead. <laughs> she maintains... <Right. laughs> I know. It's, I mean, I, I, I used to be an assistant manager at Guitar Center, and let me tell you, it's hard to tell people what to do and not come across like a jerk. Mm -hmm. It really is to give orders and not seem like you're giving orders, like you're asking, just asking a favor, but it's a favor that, you know, has to be done. And right. Danny is already getting the knack of this. So, mm -hmm. yep. I also thought it was interesting um, that Danny has exhibited this tendency to gravitate towards the the outsiders of society since a Game of Thrones, because she, you know, gets advice from her handmaids and she gets information from her handmaid. She loves to go to the market and be around, like, the common people. She doesn't do what Viserys does, which is, like, just hang out with Westerosi or just hang out in her tent and act imperious and, like, she's better than everybody. Like, she's trying to make friends and common cause with the people that, I think in her mind, she perceives of as being similar to her, which is, you know, tellingly enough, it's her handmaids who are slaves because those are the people she identifies with. So it makes sense that she understands, right, there's a whole other level of society that we don't always see. Because she saw that in the Dothraki culture. Like, there was the women's culture, that they ex existed in a, in a kind of society of their own that, like, most people might not see on the surface. So she, you know, it really is impressive that at such a young age she was able to recognize that while she's already, you know, also suffering her own traumas and difficult experiences is able to recognize this and then utilize it, you know, everywhere she goes. And so. it's just endlessly impressive to me. I mean, she's a very impressive girl. You know, we, we are trying to answer the questions of like, where is her plot going? But it's also just worth taking time to celebrate this character. I mean, this is always, like I said, always been my favorite character a lot. And, and it's not like last time I talked about the idea of, you know, lost childhood and, and, and empathy and all the stuff, but I really like her flexible thinking and the way that mm -hmm. she is reflective. She's one of the most reflective characters in the books, and I don't think that's an accident. I think George is, very, is, is doing a very careful job of creating this character and having us get to know her so that we will understand the decisions that she makes at the end, instead of going, ah, oh, anyways, that's not Wait, good. wait, what? You mean an author wants us to, like, make sense of a character so that their actions like make make sense with things like that they're consistent like what what madness what madness, madness is this i know i know so let's do all right so we're still on the idea of leadership wisdom discernment that kind of stuff we're in the third chapter now she's navigating the various powers that be in karth and looking for aid in her quest to retake westeros like i was saying and she's demonstrating a lot of wisdom and perceptiveness while she's doing that and this chapter begins with her already having tried and failed with most of these various factions, 
which are neatly summed up in this paragraph. The merchant princes, grown vastly rich off of the trade between the seas, were divided into three jealous factions, the ancient guild of Spicers, the Tourmaline Brotherhood, and the Thirteen, to which Zaro belonged. Each vied with the others for dominance, and all three contended endlessly with the pureborn, and brooding over all were the warlocks, with their blue lips and dread powers, seldom seen but much feared. And Guilty Undertaker does have a good uh, point that Tyrion walks through the market and looks at the people with contempt, whereas Danny walks through the market and feels like she belongs. So that is another good contrast. And the more you contrast Danny with other characters, the more it stands out. Like I shared something on Twitter about Arya sort of having this fantasy about like the crows pecking off Joffrey's face and stuff. I wish I was a crow so I could peck his face off and his fat lips and all the stuff. And it's like, whoa there. Like, okay, I mean... You know, granted, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Joffrey's bad and stuff, but, you know, George is giving us, he's showing us what it looks like when we have a young person, specifically a, a young girl, that's sort of having a, an arc that's shaping up for her to do mass murder. Like, this is what it looks like. You, you know, ideations of, like, elaborate revenge fantasies. And, I mean, that's, Danny doesn't do that, uh, you know, in contrast, so... Um, anyways, like I said, Tourmaline Brotherhood, Guild of Spicers, the Thirteen, the Pureborn, the Warlocks, those are the five powers. The Pureborn command the largest fleet, so that's the one Danny wants the most. But despite performing the customary rituals and offering all the customary bribes, they are unwilling to help. Uh, Danny is quick to realize the truth of the matter, thinking that they never saw me for a queen, she thought bitterly. I was only an afternoon's amusement, a horse girl with a curious pet. And a little bit later, she thinks... They listened, but they did not hear or care. They are milkmen indeed. They never meant to help me. They came because they were curious. They came because they were bored, and the dragon on my shoulder interested them more than I did. So, it's figuring out what's going on here pretty quick, right? Um, she suffers not fools and holds not illusions. And again, contrast her to Viserys, who maintained these foolhardy ideas that people were sowing dragon banners and that he was going to lead a Kalasar. None of it was realistic. Danny's the opposite. She's very realistic and grasps, you know, these little failures right when they happen and doesn't try to fool herself about it. So um, another good example of this comes from an exchange with Zaro a couple of pages later. Can I just throw in that, like, this is a great example of why um, it makes perfect sense to be for Danny to be the slayer of lies and ah. to slay the lie of the mm. mummer's dragon because we see early on, even before she gets that prophecy, that she is someone who can see through a lot of the veneer of things and kind of get to the truth and the heart underneath without being taken in by flashy appearances or, you know, grand cheering crowds who love, you know, Aegon from across the sea. Like, she would be able, of anyone, she would be one of the best poised to be able to see through all of that. I think Sansa would be another because she's also someone who sees kind of below the surface in that way. But Danny, especially, we see early on that she's very well foreshadowed to be someone who wouldn't be taken in. You're right. Yeah, it, it and and we are if we have time we're going to talk about the undying prophecy at the end and there's a lot of little pieces like that that tie back into other themes of her her thing and you're right the slayer of lies is well set up. It's not just the line in the prophecy. So, cool, good point. And yes, so go ahead and uh this is a quote about um Regal the perceptive dragon who knows his wine. As Danny lifted her goblet to drink Rhaegal sniffed at the wine and drew his head back, hissing. "'Your dragon has a good nose,' Zara wiped his lips. "'The wine is ordinary. It is said that across the Jade Sea they make a golden vintage so fine that one sip makes all other wine taste like vinegar. 
Let us take my pleasure barge and go in search of it, you and I. The arbor makes the best wine in the world, Danny declared. Lord Redwine had fought for her father against the usurper, she remembered, one of the few to remain true to the last. Will he fight for me as well? There was no way to be certain after so many years. Come with me to the arbor, Zaro, and you'll have the finest vintages you ever tasted, but we'll need to go in a warship, not a pleasure barge. I have no warships. War is bad for trade. Many times I have told you, Zaro Zoandaxos is a man of peace. Zaro Zoandaxos is a man of gold, she thought, and gold will buy me all the ships and swords I need. I have not asked you to take up a sword, only to lend me your ships. He smiled modestly. Of trading ships, I have a few, that is so. Who can say how many? One may be sinking even now in some stormy corner of the summer sea. On the morrow, another will fall afoul of corsairs. The next day, one of my captains may look at the wealth in his hold and think, all this should belong to me. Such are the perils of trade. Why, the longer we talk, the fewer ships I am likely to have. I grow poorer by the instant. Give me ships, and I will make you rich again. Marry me, bright light, and sail the ship of my heart. I cannot sleep at night for thinking of your beauty. Danny smiled. Zaro's flowery protestations of passion amused her, but his manner was at odds with his words. While Sir Jorah had scarcely been able to keep his eyes from her bare breast when he'd helped her into the palanquin, Zaro hardly deigned to notice it, even in these close confines. And she had seen the beautiful boys who surrounded the merchant prince, flitting through his palace walls in wisps of silk. You speak sweetly, Zaro, but under your words I hear another no. Uh, let's all give a hand for Ball the Bard, who is absolutely capturing the essence of both Zaro Zoandaxos and Sir Jorah. Very well done. <laughs> Loving this. So yeah, Danny is perceptive. Um, I almost used uh, an extinct term that we don't use that's a joke off the word radar. However, Danny's radar is, is, uh, is accurate. She's, she's, she sees what's going on here. She knows that important thing is that she knows Zaro doesn't want to marry her for like straightforward interests. He has some ulterior motive, which they eventually sniff out. They realize there's a Carthine wedding custom that if, they, if, he, if she marries her, he can ask her for anything on the first night. And he, he, she would have to give him one of her dragons, basically. So, I like this first. I like this first night. It better, is better. I must say. It's better. Like one gift. Yeah, definitely a better custom. <laughs> uh, but for Danny, of course, she can't. You know, she can't be suckered out of one of her dragons. And so Zaro is the one who's helping her the most, but still he's not trustworthy. So Danny's in the awkward position of basically living off of his hospitality, but also still trying to feel out his intentions, which she is doing. So, um, yep, all right. So then along the lines of Danny knowing to seek out the word on the street in Carth and generally being conscious of all levels of society, we have the scene at the market where she immediately recognizes the cut purse racket going on. The fire mage had conjured a ladder in the air, a crackling orange ladder of swirling flame that rose unsupported from the floor of the bazaar, reaching toward the high latticed roof most of the spectators, she noticed, were not of the city. She saw sailors off trading ships, merchants come by caravan, dusty men out of the red waste, wandering soldiers, craftsmen, slavers. Jogo slid one hand about her waist and leaned close. The milkmen shun him. Kalisi, do you see the girl in the felt hat? There, behind the fat priest. She is a cut purse. 
finished Annie. She was no pampered lady blind to such things. She had seen cut purses aplenty in the streets of the free cities. During the years she'd spent with her brother, running from the usurper's hired knives. The mage was gesturing, urging the flames higher and higher with broad sweeps of his arms. As the watchers craned their necks upward, the cut purses squirmed through the press, small blades hidden in their palms. They relieved the prosperous of their coin with one hand, while pointing upward with the other. So there you go. Again, Danny kind of knows what's up. She sees the different levels of society going on. And I like how this is woven in with, obviously, the other thing that's going on here is the fire mage climbing the ladder. It's, you know, it's a magical distraction. And then Quaithe pops up with her cryptic advice. So there's a lot of magical stuff going on. But again, we see these character-building moments where it's not just a scene in the market. Like, Danny, you know, George takes a minute to show us that Danny's perceptive and knows what is going on. So, very cool. All right. Um, let's see. There was a super chat a bit ago that I missed that you grabbed for me. Thank you. And it was from Chris B., who asks, uh, I'm interested in the ultimate occult... Gnostic point that George is trying to make. John is Jesus, but through history we keep killing, forgetting our mother goddess, Danny. <clears throat> so that's, that's a huge question. Um, I would say that Danny is definitely, has a lot of mother goddess ideas around Danny, for sure. Um, I don't know if there's a message. George is drawing from so many different myths to build characters, but none of them are like quite one-to-one. -one. So it in the sense that every character is the hero of their own story, so many characters we have found doing the Azor High symbolism routine, even Arya, you know, Davos, all kinds of people who are clearly not Azor High reborn like Danny or John is. So I think if there's a message, it might be like everyone has that heroic moment. Um, Azor Hype uh, talks about, um, you know, Kyle, he talks about an Azor High moment, kind of like uh, that moment mm -hmm. of heroism that is in so many different arcs, and it's often paralleled to the Zorahai myth or the Nissanissa myth or anything like that. So I think that the message probably will, it'll, it'll be there once it's done. Like, I, I don't think we're going to get a John killing Danny because Danny's the evil tyrant ending, of course. So we'll have to see what George does do with those two characters, uh, with the reveal of RLJ, how it's used, and how those two come together to be able to see what kind of commentary he's giving. But if you think about the mother goddess, the mother goddess often reflects like suppressed emotions, suppression of nature and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so Danny is definitely coming around and almost like the vengeance of the oppressed. I mean, that's the whole point of her, like freeing slaves, starting off as a slave, always identifying with the downtrodden, like her draconic nature being, being associated with protection and, and vengeance for her children fits in with that very well. So I think that We'll have to see what level of judgment and punishment that Danny might be bringing to the evil people of Westeros even before she fights the others. Do you have some comments you'd like to add? I'm sure you do. Um, I would say that if Martin is trying to do something, I could see potentially the idea that like being a hero is multifaceted. Like there's more than one way to be a hero because John and Danny are heroic in different ways. Um, because they have different symbolism, different mythologies associated with them. Um, and I would say that there may be something to the idea of Martin showing that, um, not that there is this kind of like specifically gendered way to be a hero, but that like 
it is very common to have the hero, especially in a lot of um, medieval-esque fantasy, is typically male. So the fact that he's paralleling John and Danny as both heroes, I think, says something about the fact that he wants us to see that, um, you know, we could, you know, hero, being a hero is more than just about being, like, the, the primary male character in the story, the way that we're used to expecting that. He, I think it is interesting that he's got like a male and female protagonist that have very similar arcs and closely parallel each other. And we're supposed to compare them to each other as this kind of, you've talked before about the like, the way that the yin and the yang function together and like ice and fire, this kind of duality. And that Martin might be drawing on the idea that like, there is an important, you know, mother goddess warrior type energy that we have been neglecting within the I would say maybe even the western canon of storytelling because we've been so focused on like the archetypal male hero that we have kind of forgotten that like there is another you know energy in the universe that may be embodied as the divine feminine um and Danny's got aspects of that because he draws on so many different goddesses when he you know talks about Danny and a lot of them have both you know, the mothering energy and the destructive energy. You've talked about Kali before, that, like, that energy is involved as well. Danny's got both, like, destruction and birth, birth and creation, life and death kind of going together, so... Yeah, that one's that one's even right in the name. I remember when I figured, oh, Kali! She's Kali! Kali! <laughs> I love it when you have that moment where you're like, Duh, why did I not see the thing staring me in the face? <laughs> like, yep. those are great. It is right there. So, yeah, I still, I think I never, I still have a really, a, this nice little hunk of Kali research that I never got into an episode. I've got it. I need to circle back around and get that. I'm glad. Thanks for reminding me, universe. It's pretty cool. It goes along with what uh, Salty Caps fan and a couple of other people and I were talking about last week of like fire and blood being. Um, hearth and home, as well as like death and destruction, that seems to kind of go along with the idea of Kali, like as well. You have that duality built, duality built in of like destructive power, but also hearth, home, safety, life giving power. Like both of those things kind of combined in one, and Danny represents all of that. So and yeah, I think you should come back to Kali and and the and. To follow up, another comment here in the chat talking about heroism and self sacrifice. George does. Like, that's the whole point of the Azor High myth, is that it's a false heroic ideal that the hero is Azor High, the guy who has to commit blood sacrifice to create a weapon. If any, if you take the Azor High myth straightforward, like, the hero is actually Nissa Nissa, right? She's the one who sacrifices to create the weapon. But I think that primarily the myth is, is presented so that we're given this idea that, like, yeah, sometimes the heroes just have to do really, really bad stuff. And, of course, Davos says, oh, I, I couldn't do that. So I think that we're going to see some important inversions of that, meaning that the, her, the real heroic ideal is the Nyssa, Nyssa side of it, the self-sacrifice. And I wouldn't be surprised if George flips it around and it's John sacrificing something in a Nyssa Nyssa-like mm -hmm. way. Of course, he's a magical being, so I'm not saying, like, Danny's got to stab him with a sword, but... I'm just looking, George likes to flip the roles around a lot. Like, even in the Alchemical Wedding, Drogo and Danny are both doing Nissa Nissa and Azor High things. It's flipping around on both sides. So, that's getting off the beaten path, but I hope, uh, yeah. I hope that was worth your money, Chris B., if you will. So, let's go back to, there we go, the script. So, I've got a little chunk, a very small collection of 
um, a few different moments of kindness and empathy. Like I said, it's a bigger theme in the first book, but there are a few cool moments that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first one is in her first chapter when they're in the Red Waste. It brings us the very sad death of Doria, who, of course, gave us the Carthine tale of the second moon. May she rest in peace. Dorea took a fever and grew worse with every league they crossed. Her lips and hands broke with blood blisters. Her hair came out in clumps, and one even fall she lacked the strength to mount her horse. Jogo said they must leave her or bind her to the saddle, but Danny remembered a night on the Dothraki Sea when the Lysini girl had taught her secret so that Drogo might love her more. She gave Dorea water from her own skin, cooled her brow with a damp cloth, and held her hand until she died, shivering. Only then would she permit the Kalisar to press on. So Danny has respect for the dead and for every member of her group. She often tends to her people herself. And there's a nice little bit about Danny tending to Jorah's wound uh, just a little bit later. One woman was stung by a red scorpion, but hers was the only death. The horses began to put on some flesh. Danny tended Sir Jorah's wound herself, and it began to heal. Maybe, maybe she should have tended, tended Drogo's wound herself. Yeah, yeah, well. Also, it makes me think of Lord of the Rings because the hands of a king are the hands of a healer, so. Oh, hey. Good Queen Danny. Go. <laughs> she really does do a lot of hands-on stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I have to think this is George trying to show us something. Like, she's not above the fray. You know, she walks right out into the crowds of uh, disease, you know, a disease, not disease, that's not really what I want to say, disease-ridden, but they're the... The refugee camps where the pale mare is rampant, you know, she walks out there to give comfort to her people. So she's she's just never afraid of getting her hands dirty or helping directly, and I think that's cool. So are you ready to read the sad story of? Actually, it's not. We're not going to read the whole Lanes story. This is basically Danny reacting to Jora after the Lanes story. But you remember Jora uh, fell in love with young, beautiful Lanes Hightower when he won a tournament. Um, another young girl, Jorah, was twice her age. You know, that's creepy Jorah for you. And essentially, he had a very short marriage to this woman. She was a southern woman, and he lived in Bear Island, and they went back to Bear Island, and there wasn't enough feasts and happiness and revelry for her. She didn't like it, and so Jorah began doing bad things to come up with money, and they ended up running away from home, and that's how Jorah uh, left his home, and they went over to Essos, and it's a whole long, sad story point is, there's two, two takeaways, is that Liness looks like Danny, and Jorah associates, um, sort of transfers his long-lost crush for his lost love onto Danny, and Danny figures this out, uh, but still has sympathy for him. So go ahead and read this passage. She gave him leave to go, but as he was lifting the flap of her tent, she could not stop herself calling after him with one last question. What did she look like, your lady Liness? Sir Jorah smiled sadly. Why, she looked a bit like you, Daenerys. He bowed low. Sleep well, my queen. Danny shivered and pulled the lion skin tight about her. She looked like me. It explained much that she had not truly understood. He wants me, she realized. He loves me as he loved her, not as a knight loves his queen, but as a man loves a woman. She tried to imagine herself in Sir Jorah's arms, kissing him, pleasuring him, letting him enter her... It was no good. When she closed her eyes, his face kept changing into Drogo's. She had heard the longing in Sir Jorah's voice when he spoke of his bare island. He can never have me, but one day I can give him back his home and honor. That much I can do for him. The point of this is that 
Again, Danny's able to compartmentalize. She's perceptive and realizes what's going on. Okay, I get it. He has a crush on me because I look like his lost love. Da 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 da. Kind of creepy, but again, Jorah is a valuable source of advice, a valuable ally, and so she has to navigate the situation delicately. And I like the way that she kind of figures out basically like what he really wants. He doesn't really want a new honey, a new main squeeze. That's that's it's actually not what Jorah wants. What Jorah really wants. Oh, am I, am I saying awkward things while you're on the internet, Paul the Bard, and making you laugh? That's part of the deal. I have never thought of Danny as like honey, a honey or a main squeeze. They're just like weird words to associate with Danny or Jorah for that matter. Like, ugh. that was the idea. In any case, she figures out that what he really wants is basically his home and his honor. And so she says, you know, he can never have me, but one day I can give him back his home and honor. That much I can do for him. So I just like that. She's empathetic, you know, and she she's able to just do multiple things at one time. Like she's not totally freaked out by the crush thing that, she, that that's all she can think about. So just like that. Spinning multiple plates, empathetic and perceptive. So I don't know how to change names. Just said the bear wants honey. So you, you didn't even realize what you were doing and you made a really good joke. A bear that was also a bear, head, a bear, all covered with hair. With hair. I mean, he is a hairy bear. That song's about cunnilingus, um, by the way, if you, if you didn't figure that it, out. Yeah. Um, and it, I started singing in my head, What a knight wants, what a knight needs, whatever makes him happy. Is like, that Christina know, two streams in a row? Yes! I love Christina. Rage on. Yep. Okay, so, yes, uh, this is more empathy coming with Viserys post-mortem. In her third chapter, she's contemplating her failures to gain assistance in Karth, and she's pondering the nature of being a beggar king, just like Viserys, and she finds some empathy for him. Um, The paragraph begins with her thinking about how she has sold off all the rich gifts offered to her in Karth to bribe the pureborn. The crown was the only offering she'd kept. The rest she sold to gather the wealth she had wasted on the pureborn. Zara would have sold the crown, too, the thirteen would see that she had a much finer one, he swore, but Danny forbade it. Viserys sold my mother's crown, and men called him a beggar. I shall keep this one, so men will call me a queen. And so she did, though the weight of it made her neck ache. Yet even crowned I am a beggar still, Danny thought. I have become the most splendid beggar in the world, but a beggar all the same. She hated it, as her brother must have. All those years of running from city to city, one step ahead of the usurper's knives, pleading for help from archons and princes and magisters, buying our food with flattery. He must have known how they mocked him. Small wonder he turned so angry and bitter. In the end, it had driven him mad. It will do the same to me if I let it. Part of her would have liked nothing more than to lead her people back to Vase Taloro and make the dead city bloom. No, that is defeat. I have something Viserys never had. I have the dragons. The dragons are all the difference. So this is pretty important self-reflection here. She's thinking about the symbols of power versus actual power. You know, she's, the crown is a symbol, and she's recognizing that that's important, but obviously she needs real power too. So she's thinking about power on multiple levels. In addition to this in- insightful empathy for Viserys, Danny's also wise to consider the toll that various choices will have on her own psyche. So this is like some pretty good self-awareness here. Again and again, we see Danny demonstrate empathy in tandem with wisdom. And again, we see her determination tempered by realism. 
And I just just love those things. So, all right. So the the fifth chapter, uh, the last little moment of little small kindness moment, is this is the scene where Sir Barristan and Strong Belwa save Danny from the sorrowful man and the manticore that's in the little jeweled box. So as Danny and Jorah are watching Belwas and Barristan, who's disguised as Arston Whitebeard, of course, in the reflection of the large brass plate. If you remember, they're doing this thing where they're, they're haggling with a brass vendor and holding up the plate and looking in the reflection to see the people behind them. So Danny's haggling with the brass merchant, and she's bargaining down the value of the plate in order to buy time and draw the thing out. And she's actually getting pretty mean. She says... It might serve to carry night soil, and if you threw it away, I might pick it up, so long as I did not need to stoop. So pretty creative, I thought. But so after the manticore is killed and the threat passes, Danny has a nice little moment with the terrified brass merchant, who she's been insulting for like five minutes. <laughs> they were defending me. Danny snapped her hand to shake the sting from her fingers. It was the other one, the Carthine. When she looked around, he was gone. He was a sorrowful man. There was a manticore in that jewel box he gave me. This man knocked it out of my hand. The brass merchant was still rolling on the ground. She went to him and helped him to his feet. Were you stung? No, good lady, he said, shaking. Or else I would be dead. But it touched me. Aye! When it fell from the box, it landed on my arm. He had soiled himself, she saw, and no wonder. She gave him a silver for his trouble and sent him on his way before she turned back to the old man with the white beard. Who is it that I owe my life to? So she's just, you know, basic decency, thoughtful empathy. She doesn't act like royalty who doesn't need to give a crap about the, you know, the little commoners pooping their pants around her as they almost die, you know, on her behalf. No, she's like, thank you. You saved my life and you suffered on my behalf. So here's a coin and just like it. Very cool. All right. So we're going to come back to the House of the Undying Vision. So let's go ahead all the way back to the top of the Marriage. document, Gretchen. Now we're going to get to... Kind of the most important part of this book for yeah. her, I think. Well, uh, uh, Guilty Un Undertaker made the joke that Arston Whitebeard will never not make me chuckle, and I totally agree. Like, poor, poor Barry. I mean, I love, I love Barristan. He's like, um, I'm not Barristan. I'm, I'm Arston. Arston White. Whitebeard. Beard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a squire. <laughs> I'm seventy, but I'm a squire. He's just like... Oh, and also let me tell you more about the uh, third generation Targaryen dynasty. Like, <laughs> He's so bad at hiding. He is so bad. He's like the person who like buys the like glasses with the fake big nose and the mustache and is like, <laughs> look at me, I'm a spy. Like, <laughs> like standing behind the plant, you know, like... <laughs> you can't see me. Like, he's just... Bless him. You Bless totally call Bless Barristan Selby. You nailed that, dude. <laughs> That's a, I want that. I want that fan art now. I, I want Barristan Selmy with like the, the nose. Someone who has artistic skills, which I do not have, please draw Barristan Selmy wearing like the glasses with the big nose and fake mustache. This and could like, be. Well, I'm, I think this is a bad Photoshop thing. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll literally take a shot of Barristan. From yes. The, I'll do a bad photo. Okay. Uh, I have spoken. Um, so, anyways, magical destiny. <laughs> Here we go. Here is the quote with the comet. And this is obviously, um, not obviously, but actually the first opening lines of Danny's first chapter in A Clash of Kings. The Dothraki named the comet Shirak Kira, the bleeding star. The old men muttered that it omened ill. But Daenerys Targaryen had seen it first on the night she had burned Khal Drogo, the night her dragons had awakened. 
It is the herald of my coming, she told herself as she gazed up into the night sky with wonder in her heart. The gods have sent it to me to show me the way. Yet when she put the thought into words, her handmaid Dorea quailed. That way lies the red lands, Khaleesi, a grim place and terrible, the writers say. The way the comet points is the way we must go, Danny insisted, though in truth it was the only way open to her. So discussion of how they can't go back into the Dothraki Sea or towards Slaver's Bay ensues, uh, because the problem is that the Kalasars will take them captive. If they go towards the Lazarine, they have got no reason to love them. Jorah explains that even uh, Drogo's blood riders and Coes uh, treated Danny well before, uh, who treated Danny well before, would now take her captive. You will not live long should you meet Calpono, nor Caljaco, nor any of the others. You must go where they do not. Danny had named him the first of her queen's guard, and when Mormont's gruff counsel and the omens agreed, her course was clear. We will follow the comet, Danny told her Kalasar. Once it was said, no word was raised against it. They had been Drogo's people, but they were hers now. The unburnt, they called her, and mother of dragons. Her, her word was their law. So, like I alluded to earlier, she's not just following the comet into the wasteland for the heck of it. It actually is her only way to go. So, it's not really a potential sign of madness, but more a chance of, case of like latching on to the only bit of hope that she has, you know, and also trying to inspire people because we follow the comet is like a little more inspiring than, well, this is our only choice. So, there you go. Now, to the extent that Danny is clinging to the belief that the comet does have magical significance, one can understand. I mean, it did appear in spectacular fashion when she performed an actual miracle. So, you know, there is that. Now, there's three passages in A Clash of Kings, Danny 1, that highlight what Danny's dragons mean to her in regards to magical destiny, which, again, that's, that's the overtopic here that we're talking about, Danny's sense of her own magical destiny. This one begins with Jorah speaking. Your dragon eggs were more precious than rubies. A living dragon is beyond price. In all the world there are only three. Every man who sees them will want them, my queen. They are mine, she said fiercely. They had been born from her faith and her need, given life by the deaths of her husband and unborn son, and the Meiji Miri Mazdur. Danny had walked into the flames as they came forth, and they had drunk milk from her swollen breasts. No man will take them from me while I live. So then a minute later, the narrative discusses Danny's concern for her dragons and all the losses that she's suffered on the way to birthing them. And that's kind of the thing I want to highlight here. Danny hungered and thirsted with the rest of them. The milk in her breasts dried up, her nipples cracked and bled, and the flesh fell away from her day by day until she was lean and hard as a stick. Yet it was her dragons she feared for. Her father had been slain before she was born, and her splendid brother Rhaegar as well. Her mother had died bringing her into the world, while the storm screamed outside. Gentle Sir Willem Derry, who must have loved her after a fashion, had been taken by a wasting sickness when she was very young. Her brother Viserys, Caldrogo, who was her son in stars, even her unborn son, the gods had claimed them all. They will not have my dragons, Danny vowed. They will not. So, definitely another taste of the fearsome mother goddess protecting her children vibe. Um, you know, that aspect of Danny's character. And then a bit later, there's a similar quote to the one we just read, which again expands on the price that she paid to birth her dragons, which basically communicates kind of what they mean to her. The Dothraki looked at her hatchlings uneasily, 
The largest of her three was shiny black, his scales slashed with streaks of vivid scarlet to match his wings and horns. Khaleesi, Ago murmured, there sits Beleriand, come again. It may be as you say, blood of my blood, Danny replied gravely, but he shall have a new name for his new life. I would name them all for those the gods have taken. The green one shall be Rhaegal, for my valiant brother who died on the green banks of the trident. The cream and gold I call Viserion. Viserys was cruel and weak and frightened, yet he was my brother still. His dragon will do what he could not. And the black beast? asked Sir Jorah Mormont. The black, she said, is Drogon. So, in other words, the dragons are basically all she has to show for all her tragedies and all her losses, which is a lot. She's almost trying to draw a line in the sand with the gods or with fate itself, saying, look, you've taken everything I hold dear. You can't have my dragons. So her magical destiny is not simply fueled by the notion of destiny, nor by the individual components of magic and destiny. It's, it's everything. It's what it, basically, this is what emerged from the fire after everything else was burnt away. That's the way to say it. So try to put yourself in her shoes. Imagine all these losses, your brother, Drogo, your family, your, everything. You're, you're by your own in the Dothraki Sea. You've just lost your child, too. And emerging on the other side, you wake dragons from stone. You walk into a bonfire without being hurt. People start calling you the unburnt. I mean, most of us would be shouting, I am a golden god by this time. I mean, this is, you really do have to stop and think about what it would be like to go through that. For, for first, all the losses, and then the, the exhilaration of that miracle. So at the very least, one can identify with Danny, beginning to believe that becoming the mother of dragons is some kind of magical destiny for her. The big question as her plot progresses, of course, becomes the one that we're occupied with in these videos. What is her character and what will she, what does that say about how she'll use the dragons? That's what we're trying to figure out. But this is, this is the moment we can see in this book, her, her sense of destiny is starting to uh, come together, if you will. Mm -hmm. Comments? Um, this was one of the moments that I identified with Danny the most because um, I, I lost two children. I have, I've had two miscarriages. So this sense of, like, you can't take what I have left. Like, you've taken plenty from me. That sense that she has of, like, feeling like the gods have stripped her of everything that she valued and this is what she has left and it's like nope mm -mm. nope this is mine and I'm going to like guard and protect and treasure what I have left because this is what I have left after I have lost everything else like made that was the moment that I really started I mean I liked her before but this was a moment that I really identified with in the books because it made so much sense to me to be that fiercely protective of what little you have left because it represents both tragedy and loss, but also like the potential for life in the future. It's both of those things at once. So it has so much power like for herself and like her self-conception, but also for the way that she thinks about her future. Like what is her future without thinking about like, this is what she has to make a future out of is like her Kalasar and her dragons. And she kind of like needs that to shape her vision for what her future is going to look like. Because this is... And this is why yeah. it's very well said. Thank you for drawing on your personal experience and, and sort of framing that even a little better. 
And I think this is why it's so important for us to understand and notice in the first book that the idea of I am the dragon, it comes to Danny in the most uh, trying moments. And she uses it for inner strength. It's during her wedding night. Um, it's during all these, the, the most harrowing moments. That's when she thinks I am the dragon. Basically, like it's all that she has left to draw from for strength. And then the dragons, when they're born, literally become, like you said, all she has left after everything else is gone. So this idea that dragons are her identity and her strength is being fortified from multiple directions. And we can see that building as this goes along. Right. It's a very Phoenix-like so, idea of like... Very much, yes. So much has been burned away and this is what has been reborn from the ashes. So she's going to cling to that and make her life about that because this is the new life from the ashes of her old. That's it. That's, it's, it is, it's very Phoenix-like. I mean, it's, it's exactly that. <laughs> so, and now as they carry on through the waste, Danny's faith is tested. And this is still uh, that first chapter of A Clash of Kings. The comet mocks my hopes, she thought, lifting her eyes to where it scored the sky. Have I crossed half the world and seen the birth of dragons, only to die with them in this hard, hot desert? She would not believe it. So the next day, they find the abandoned city of Whitestone that they call base Toloro, which has a functioning well, fruit trees, and offers some respite to Danny's group. So once again, it seems like Danny is clinging to the idea of magical destiny because it's all she has, because it's a way to channel hope, and once again, it pays off. We should observe that, for better or worse, every time she pulls through another impossible trial, her faith in her own destiny is basically strengthened, um, for better or worse. I mean, think how you, think how you act if you have like three funny coincidences in, in a day, right? You're, you're basically freaking out and trying to buy like a lottery ticket. So multiply that many times, and you can see that the combination of tragedy and fortune and miracle that has been rapidly befalling Danny is shaping her sense of destiny and, the perp and purpose as she goes. So here is a good passage where the dragons seem to inspire Danny. And this is sort of doesn't fit in with what we were just talking about, but it's a cool little sidebar because it's challenging our notion of what we should associate the dragons with, not just fire and blood and destruction. There's also a moment of wonder and reverie here inspired by the dragons. Across the tent, Rhaegal unfolded green wings to flap and flutter a half foot before thumping to the carpet. When he landed, his tail lashed back and forth in fury, and he raised his head and screamed. If I had wings, I would want to fly too, Danny thought. The Targaryens of old had ridden upon Dragonback when they went to war. She tried to imagine what it would feel like to straddle a dragon's neck and soar high into the air. It would be like standing on a mountaintop, only better. The whole world would be spread out below. If I flew high enough, I could even see the Seven Kingdoms and reach up and touch the comet. So as I often point out, dragons should not simply be associated with death and violence. You know, even as she's thinking about the fact that the Targaryens rode dragons, quote, to war, she's not actually thinking of burning her enemies or pecking their fat lips off like Arya was with Roose Bolton and Joffrey or whatever. She's thinking about flying whimsically high enough to see all of Westeros and touch the comet. I mean, it's a total never-ending story. I mean, it's very, it's like exhilarating and fantastical. And so this is what the dragons are making her think of. And I just, again, I think that's interesting 
George is tossing us these little clues that like there's more to dragons than just death and destruction. Green dragon so, in the sky. And there's a, I can go twice as high. <laughs> <laughs> Take a look. It's in a book. Oh yeah, so I mentioned the I mentioned that Roose Bolton quote, and I, in the notes I have it here to compare it to that Arya quote. So I'll just read it real quick. The heads had been dipped in tar to slow the rot. Every morning when Arya went to the well to draw fresh water for Roose Bolton's basin, she had to pass beneath them. They faced outward, so she never saw their faces, but she liked to pretend that one of them was Joffrey's. She tried to picture how his pretty face would look dipped in tar. If I was a crow, I could fly down and peck off his stupid, fat, pouty lips. So, kind of funny, but also really scary. This is a 10-year-old, again, ideating about elaborate, like, gory revenge fantasies. So it's just worth comparing the kind of fantasies that are happening. Like Danny's sitting there looking at her dragons and thinking about retaking Westeros. She could very easily be picturing the, the fat head of the usurper and her dragon biting his head off or something. But she's not. That's, not. that's not who she is at all. So just wanted to put that out. But We love Arya too, but Arya is going to be a mass murderer. So right. this is what that looks like, you know. Right. Arya has a terrifying headspace for a 10-year-old child. Like, it, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I'm sure that's the point, because this is what happens to, like, children who are thrust into a war situation. Like, it's not that uncommon. She's a child soldier. But it's also terrifying to read of, like, a 10-year-old, like, yeah, dreaming of, like, you know, she dreams of eating all the people in Nymeria, and she wakes up and is, like, enjoying it. Like, yes! I ate them. And you're like... Ooh. And this is this is why I always like to say that George writes fantasy by taking all the fantasy tropes and then asking, like, what would this really look like with a real human being? Mm-hmm. And so we get all these stories about orphans that go through horrible circumstances and they come out, you know, then they're the, the chosen one or the wizard or whatever. And it's like, no, that kind of stuff, like, it has an effect on you and you've got to handle it one way or the other. Um, we see Danny handling her trauma in a way that is very different from someone like Arya. It's, and then there's also Sansa who handles a lot of trauma in probably, a, a, you'd say, a third way that's different from either of Arya or Danny. So probably more comparable to Danny. I haven't thought about that all the way out. But point is, George is with Arya's arc. He's showing us what can happen when a child suffers just all kinds of unbelievable tragedy. This is what war looks like. War isn't just death and destruction. It's trauma. It's people's losing their childhood. It's you know, people turning into a killer. And of course, he's playing, he's basically laying a trap for us as a reader. We're, we kind of want to root for Arya to be badass and kill all the bad guys, but we shouldn't neglect to notice the toll that it takes on her personality. So anyways, um, this is, uh, this little bit is, I'd say it's more foreshadowing than it is Danny considering her own destiny. But this is one of the ways that I think George is setting up Danny and John to be able to relate to and accept one another. So go ahead and read this quote. Caldrogo had been her son in stars, her first, and perhaps he must be her last. The Meiji Miri Mazdur had sworn that she would never bear a living child. And what man would want a barren wife? And what man could hope to rival Drogo, who had died with his hair uncut and rode now through the nightlands, the stars, his calisar? So how about a man who has defeated death? who has gone to the Nightlands and returned. How about Jon Snow, who will likely have no interest in making babies, and whose glorious hair is also relatively uncut? 
Except for in the show where they cut his hair. I was, his... I was going to make a joke about that. I was going to be like, oh, yeah, she wants a dude with uncut hair? Well, sorry, John. Like, well, to be fair, Melisandre, haircut. really, she just did a little trim. I mean, she didn't really, like, give him bangs or anything, you know. <laughs> she should have given him, like, a Humperdinck haircut. That would have been funny. It's like a bowl cut. Like... Yeah, yeah. No. And, and, and I do think, of course, John's hair is going to go white and it's going to look all Elric of Melnibony and, and all that. But you can see what I'm saying here. Um. You know, I'm partially kidding with the hair joke, uh, but, you know, John is dark and handsome, and that's probably not going to work against him. Danny does consider appearance. John is, you know, he's cute and whatever. But the point is here the personality, okay? So one could easily ask who could possibly be the equal of Queen Daenerys Targaryen, right? With her dragons and her trail of miracles and her magical destiny once she arrives in Westeros. And the answer is John. I mean, how about the first mingling of House Stark and the blood of the dragon in thousands of years? Perhaps he's probably a man whose very existence will be a miracle by the time he meets Danny, because he'll be resurrected. Who better to understand her sense of loss, to understand the price that she's paid to get this far, than Jon Snow, who's lost more than his fair share of friends and family and loved ones along the way to losing his own life. Just as Danny lost Drogo, Jon also lost Ygritte, his first love, with each painfully and dramatically watching their loved one pass. I mean, I could go on, but I think you can see that there is ample setup for John and Danny to connect on more than just being the last two Targaryens in the world. So I thought that was cool. Because it really is just like asking the question rhetorically. Who could love me? You know, what man could want me? You know, who could rival Drogo? It's like, well, resurrected really John Targaryen Snow. I'm really glad he did shift over to like what man can rival Drogo. Because I'm really tired of the like... Oh no, a barren woman is the worst possible thing you could be. Because it's, you know, like, there's the joke that goes around of like, I have a terrible secret. Everyone hates me. It makes me the worst. I can't have babies. And like, I mean, it's really not that. I mean, I understand in their society that like a woman who can't have children probably would have been a pretty big deal. But I'm also glad that Martin doesn't like harp on it because it's frustrating. And in the end... John ain't gonna care, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, we, we, I mean, I, he probably won't be able to like father children. So why does it matter? I mean, as we've discussed, uh, there is still the theoretical green seer resurrection that might be better than the ice or fire resurrection. So maybe John will still have flowing blood Res- functionality. Erection. I wasn't going to say erection, but yes, erections. Um, we will see. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, Barrick. Barrick's blood flowed not, says George, um, and vital processes had stopped. He's just a walking meat sack with a soul inhabited in it. So we don't know what's going to be with John, but I, like you said you know, in our discussion, I don't think the point of John and Danny is going to be for them to have a kid. Like That was a little show plot line they did, but I really don't even think that's going to happen, probably. Right. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me that they would have a magic baby because it does seem like martin is going for like this is the end of the targaryen line like the targaryens like the dragons end here and if the med like the targaryens as you know symbolic and metaphorical dragons have to end like it makes sense that the last two scions of house targaryen are both infertile and cannot have more children when danny first reaches karth we can stop talking about erections now in her second <clears throat> chapter piat pre and Zarzo and Daxos are competing to win Danny's favor by promising all sorts of gifts from extravagant... Oh, Jesus. Now, I can't... 
Now it's all double entendre. An extravagant crown to a visit to the Palace of the Undying. You're welcome. That's my job. What am I even talking about? Um, oh, yes. Okay, so Magical Destiny, and Danny's going to talk about conquering Westeros. So, yeah, go ahead and read this. The only palace I desire is the Red Castle at King's Landing, my Lord Pyat. Danny was wary of the warlock. The mage Ymir Mazdor had soured her on those who played at sorcery. And if the Great of Karth would give me gifts, Zaro, let them give me ships and swords to win back what is rightfully mine. So this is the first time that, since Drogo died at least, that Danny is speaking openly of conquering Westeros. She's still going to be thinking of the concept of home and longing for belonging. Longing for belonging, if you will. But we can see that the dream of retaking Westeros for House Targaryen has now fully transferred from Viserys onto Danny. That transfer was highlighted when Danny named Viserion, in fact. We just read that. She says she was naming the dragon after Viserys, despite his many flaws, so that, quote, his dragon will do what he could not, meaning retake Westeros. So to whatever extent Danny believes her birthing of dragons and survival against great odds is predestined or fated, she now seems to think that the purpose is for her to retake Westeros. As I've said before, I see the idea of Danny doing that, especially using her dragons to retake Westeros, as a trap. It's a trap. Using dragons in an offensive war, I don't think, can really be considered just in any sense. I mean, you could certainly argue that liberating slaves is just, because liberating slaves is always just. Um, but, but the overarching message is that using dragons in war, you're basically just roasting people. And it's going to lead to mass civilian casualties. That's kind of the whole point of the Dance of the Dragons, if you will. I think, I mean, one of the points that George is doing by putting the, that, uh, the dance out, you know, now, before Danny comes to Westeros, is so we know what to expect when dragons go to war. Like, everyone dies, the dragons die, it's basically a horror show. So, uh, basically what I'm saying, taking Westeros with dragons is a little bit of a false prize, and as I mentioned, the Iron Throne basically symbolizes the false prize in the story, we're supposed to be, you know, worried about the others, right? So this applies to Danny more than anyone, I think. She ultimately needs to turn her eyes from the Iron Throne to the others. So um, I expect that she'll probably walk, she'll either walk right up to the brink of disaster before realizing this, or perhaps she'll even take King's Landing and she'll have a high civilian, uh, civilian casualty count and that will force Danny to change course. So cause her to reflect, realize that she's erred, and that the true use for the dragons is to fight the others. I mean, this is all, again, I'm speculating here, but these are the themes that I see emerging. And I think that's why George is taking so much time to show us her character here in a lot of small ways and some big ways, is so that it makes sense when she eventually does the right thing. It's a very interesting conflict of the heart, really. On one hand, we've got Danny's search for home, which is now merged with the dream of retaking Westeros. And on the other, we have her deep empathy for her fellow human being, especially the weak and downtrodden, not to mention her kindness, thoughtfulness, tendency for self-reflection, wisdom, perceptiveness, and basic decency. So, you know, all the things they say about Hitler as a young man. Moving on. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to throw that in. in instead it. of the portrait of an artist at the young man, like portrait of a Hitler. Portrait of a, a dragon man. Hitler as a young lady, right? <clears throat> this is just what it looks like. Yep. Yeah, empathy, <laughs> kindness, you know, protecting people, all of the things that you expect from a future fascist. Just, you know, embracing other cultures, finding what's valuable about them, wanting to incorporate them into your family and home. I mean, fascists love all that. 
they just yep yeah little mm -hmm. yeah i mean <laughs> so not long after danny reaches the respite of zara's mansion there's a nice chunky passage full of Danny musing on what it would be like to conquer Westeros, what her dragons are for, and basically everything that we're discussing. Woo! So why don't you go ahead and read it. When all the men had gone, her handmaid stripped off the travel-stained silk she wore, and Danny padded out to where the marble pool sat in the shade of a portico. The water was deliciously cool, and the pool was stocked with tiny golden fish that nibbled curiously at her skin and made her giggle. It felt good to close her eyes and float, knowing she could rest as long as she liked. She wondered whether Aegon's Red Keep had a pool like this, and fragrant gardens full of lavender and mint. It must, surely. Viserys always said the Seven Kingdoms were more beautiful than any other place in the world. The thought of home disquieted her. If her son and stars had lived, he would have led this Kalasar across the poison water and swept away her enemies. But his strength had left the world. Her blood riders remained, sworn to her for life, and skilled in slaughter, but only in the ways of the horse lords. The Dothraki sacked cities and plundered kingdoms. They did not rule them. Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. <clears throat> um, excuse me. She had supped enough on tears. I want to make my kingdom beautiful, to fill it with fat men and pretty maids and laughing children. I want my people to smile when they see me ride by, the way Viserys said they smiled for my father. But before she could do that, she must conquer. The usurper will kill you, sure as sunrise, Mormont had said. Robert had slain her gallant brother Rhaegar, and one of his creature creatures had crossed the Dothraki Sea to poison her and her unborn son. They said Robert Baratheon was strong as a bull and fearless in battle, a man who loved nothing better than war and with him stood the great lords her brother had named the usurper's dogs, cold-eyed Eddard Stark with his frozen heart, and the golden Lannisters, father and son, so rich, so powerful, so treacherous. How could she hope to overthrow such men? When Caldrogo had lived, men trembled and made him gifts to stay his wrath. If they did not, he took their cities, wealth, and wives, and all. But his calisar had been vast, while hers was meager, her people had followed her across the red waste as she chased her comet, and would follow her across the poison water too, but they would not be enough. Even her dragons might not be enough. Viserys had believed that the realm would rise for its rightful king, but Viserys had been a fool, and fools believe in foolish things. Her doubts made her shiver. Suddenly the water felt cold to her, and the little fish pricking at her skin annoying. Danny stood and climbed from the pool. Eerie, she called, Jiki. As the handmaids toweled her dry and wrapped her in a sand silk robe, Danny's thoughts went to the three who had sought her out in the city of bones. The bleeding star led me to Karth for a purpose. Here I will find what I need, if I have the strength to take what is offered, and the wisdom to avoid the traps and snares. If the gods mean for me to conquer, they will provide. They will send me a sign, and if not, if not... Well read. Thank you very much. That is a whale of a passage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of goodies in there. So, back at the beginning, going back to the beginning of the quote, she's relaxing in the pool. She's feeling safe for once, which means a lot to Danny, of course. She's thinking about how nice it would be, or how nice it was to know that she can rest for as long as she wants and just chill for a minute. And she doesn't get that very much. So she's getting a very small taste of home and safety, and it leads her to wonder if Westeros and King's Landing might not have such a safe place for her also. 
It's basically just more cross-association between the concept of home and safety and retaking Westeros. Just like I said, it's kind of just woven through this whole book and the rest of her arc. And then comes this very important set of thoughts where Danny quickly realizes that she and Drogo, that had she and Drogo led a huge Kalasar to invade Westeros, the Dothraki love of sack and plunder would have been a problem. The line here that D&D didn't read is, Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. Sorry, sorry. Maybe they, maybe they just missed the no part. And we're like, oh, Danny had a wish to turn King's Landing into a blackened heap with unquiet ghosts. All right. So wouldn't it be ironic if like, she did the opposite of what she's always intended to do? That would just be like, okay, anyway. So shocking. Shock. Shock it all, man. So, you know, of course not. She does she doesn't want to... Anyway, so as I've said repeatedly, to the extent that Danny causes civilian, ca- uh, civilian casualties... I'm really having a problem with civilian today. <laughs> <laughs> if Danny causes civilian casualties in the process of retaking King's Landing, she will weep. She will gnash her teeth. She will feel sorrow. She will not willfully murder people. You know, look out upon the rubble and smile and say, Yes, I have won. To the extent that she reduces parts of King's Landing to rubble... The Daenerys Targaryen on the pages of the books that we're reading here will look out and think, what have I done? Am I the mother of monsters? And, and that kind of thing. So to me, there's really a terrific story here to be written, either by Danny having just such a moment which catalyzes her to wield her dragons against the others, most likely laying her own life down in the cause, or by pulling back from the brink of such a tragedy at King's Landing and then heading north. So, like I said, I don't know how far it will go in the process of her conquest, But what I feel certain about is that there will at some point be this moment when she has to put down the quest for the Iron Throne and and turn north. I mean, and that's going to be, my opinion, the the last part of her journey. She goes north. I don't think she's coming back. So. Mm Hmm. Oh, we got we got a um, super chat from Pat Riley that says, "But but but the bells." Yeah, there's lots of good comments I've been catching on this. Everyone's piping up and piling on D&D. I mean, open season at this point. You suck. Uh, yeah, so... It's just... I mean, it's just right there, you know. Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin. Anyways. Another interesting thing to note here is the way that Danny is thinking about potential uh, conquest of Westeros. She wants to make it a nice place, full of happy people. But first, it must be essentially liberated from the usurper and his dogs. And as the books progress, and in a dance with dragons especially, Danny is slowly learning the truth of her own father's misrule, and even hearing a bit about the honor of the Starks. So we'll have to see what her concept of Westeros needing liberation is by the time that she actually gets there. And I also mentioned that, you know, Fagon will probably sit the Iron Throne by the time that Danny arrives. And he's supposed to be the mummer's dragon cheered by crowds. So that means that he'll probably be popular. It won't be the detestable misrule of Cersei that Danny will be looking to replace by the time she gets there. It'll be popular Fagon sitting on the throne, and that's going to make it even more complicated. So like I said earlier, that's one of the reasons why we're documenting Danny's perceptiveness and her thoughtfulness, as well as her kindness and empathy, because she's going to need wisdom and judgment to see her way around and through this trap of retaking Westeros with blood and fire. In fact, she's thinking about hoping that she has the wisdom to avoid traps and snares in Karth in this very passage. 
So you can see that George is developing this idea in her arc that Danny has to navigate all these traps with, with wisdom and perceptiveness. Just like you were saying a minute ago, Gretchen, she's you know, very perceptive and that's important. This is, mm-hmm. this is why I think it's important because she's going to have to do like, her plot is all gonna come down to not being stuck on this idea of just conquering Westeros with the dragons and then I win. She's got to see past that. So I don't want to harp on it too much, but it's just really important. So and then uh, finally note that Danny's belief in magical destiny and fate is tempered with some amount of healthy uncertainty. She's putting it in the hands of the gods, if you will, when she's saying, well, if I'm destined to survive, then I will. And if not, if not, you know, then I won't, which is actually kind of Zen. And she's also worrying that the dragons, even when larger, may not be enough to retake Westeros and that Viserys was foolish for being overconfident. So again, her belief in destiny is not as of yet making her overconfident or foolish. I just want to point that out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, typically it's the like, if you're asking yourself if you're crazy, then you're probably not. So if she's asking herself, like, am I being foolish or overconfident, then she's at this point, she's probably not. Like the more, that's one of the things I've always found so interesting about Danny is just how much she questions herself and questions her decisions. And that was what made not just her going crazy, but the way that D&D wrote her as being so certain that she's right in doing everything that she's doing just kind of feel wrong to me because Danny has always been the kind of person who, even if she might speak strongly because she's trying to encourage her men or trying to encourage her Kalasar or trying to, you know, show people that she's a strong person. Like deep down inside, like she questions every decision that she makes. So the idea that Danny would be like, well, I'm right and literally everyone else is wrong and no one can make me question the fact that I am right is like, Art, mm, that's really not the kind of person it would take a I mean, Danny would have to become a completely different person in order to get to that place. And at this point, like... There's not even time to do that, yeah. No. Yeah. Right. And if you do, and if you do try to do that, um, then it looks like what the show did, where it just feels like it just doesn't feel right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the whole point of this entire project is like, a lot of us had the same feeling after season eight, like this, that's not Danny. And then so mm-hmm. I'm reading, I'm rereading and looking here and no, it's, it's really not. Um, so, yeah. Sounds a lot more like Cersei than it does like Danny. Cersei would be very likely to be like, I am right and everyone else is wrong and therefore I'm going to burn everyone because they're wrong and well, they deserve it. And teaser for your um, Dance of the Dragons project, you know, Rhaenyra at first appears to be the Danny parallel, but mm-hmm. the, you know we figured out by talking about it that it's actually Cersei who is the Rhaenyra parallel more than mm-hmm. anything else. So. Yep, yep. If you got a, a queen on the throne in King's Landing, half your queen on the throne in King's Landing, who's kind of crazy and paranoid and literally has a son named Joffrey, you might be talking about Cersei. <laughs> Parallel to Cersei, not necessarily Danny. So, yep. yep. Looking forward to that project, like I said. But, uh, all right, so we are now... Okay, so when she learns news of Robert's death while in Carth from a Summer Island trading captain... We see an important aspect of Danny's concept of what it will mean to retake Westeros disgust. And that's the idea that bleeding Westeros needs Daenerys Targaryen to come to the rescue. The boy sits the Iron Throne now, Sir Jorah said. King Joffrey reigns, Kuhurumo agreed, but the Lannisters rule. Brother Robert's brothers have fled King's Landing. 
The talk is, they mean to claim the crown, and the hand has fallen. Lord Stark, who is King Robert's friend, he has been seized for treason. Ned Stark a traitor? Jorah snorted. Not bloody likely. The long summer will come again before that one would besmirch his precious honor. What honor could he have? Danny said. He was a traitor to his true king, as were these Lannisters. It pleased her to hear that the usurper's dogs were fighting amongst themselves, though she was unsurprised. The same thing happened when her Drogo died, and his great Kalisar tore itself to pieces. My brother is dead as well, Viserys who was the true king, she told the Summer Islander. Call Drogo my lord husband killed him with a crown of molten gold. Would her brother have been any wiser had he known that the vengeance he had prayed for was so close at hand? Then I grieve for you, Dragon Mother, and for bleeding Westeros, bereft of its rightful king. So the idea of a bleeding land and an oppressed populace is very convenient. Um, it's a very convenient resolution, rather, to the potential tension between violent conquest and protecting people. <clears throat> if the people are suffering, then Danny's conquest of Westeros would seem largely justified. But I don't think that is where George is going with her story, because that would just be kind of easy and boring and simple and there's not really a conflict there. The Iron Throne has always served as a symbol of the false prize, like I was saying. So, you know, that's, I think that's going to apply more to Danny than anyone else. The situation in Westeros is changing all the time, mostly for the worse, but as I mentioned, it might be taking an upturn under King Fagon before Danny gets there. And let me just say, no, Fagon is not confirmed. He might be Trugon, or he might be the Pisswater Prince. We don't know. I just call him Fagon because everyone... You know, he's probably Fagon, Blackfire. You know, Fagon means, uh, you know, he's a Blackfire or Lyrio's son or something like that. But point is, I'm just referring to the character. I'm not dogmatic about it. If you, if you think he's real, that's fine. And maybe he is. Um, I think that Danny might not know if he's real or not. And it's going to end up killing him in war. And it's going to affect her as if she has killed a long lost relative. And I think that's going to shape how she looks at John potentially. There's a lot of interesting stuff Martin can do there, so we'll just have to see. But mm -hmm. you, fa you, uh, true gone truthers, you're cool with me. It's, we're good. It's all right. To me, like I was saying, I think this will make sense if if King's Landing is under the rule of Fagon and it's kind of kind of going well and he's popular and maybe he's improved a couple things because this will this will make Danny think twice about conquest and you know, um, the potential, you know, anguish of potentially thinking that she's killed one of her only last relatives. So, Danny is a Clash of Kings chapter, uh, the second one, ends with a declaration of purpose that we definitely want to make note of. Khaleesi, the knight said when they were alone, I should not speak so freely of your plans, if I were you. This man will spread the tale wherever he goes now. Let him, she said, let the whole world know my purpose. The usurper is dead. What does it matter? Not every sailor's tale is true, Sir Jorah cautioned. And even if Robert be truly dead, his son rules in his place. This changes nothing, truly. This changes everything, Danny rose abruptly. Screeching, her dragons uncoiled and spread their wings. Drogon flapped and clawed up to the lintel over the archway. The others skittered across the floor, wingtips scrabbling on the marble. Before, the Seven Kingdoms were like my Drogo's Kalisar, a hundred thousand made as one by his strength. Now they fly to pieces, even as the Kalisar did after my call lay dead. The High Lords have always fought. Tell me who's won, and I'll tell you what it means. Khaleesi, the Seven Kingdoms are not going to fall into your hands like so many ripe peaches. You will need a fleet, gold, armies, alliances. All this I know. 
She took his hands in hers and looked up into his dark, suspicious eyes. Sometimes he thinks of me as a child he must protect, and sometimes as a woman he would like to bed. But does he ever truly see me as his queen? I am not the frightened girl you met in Pentos. I have only counted fifteen name days true, but I am as old as the crones in the Doshkalin and as young as my dragon's Jora. I have borne a child, burned a cull, and crossed the Red Waste and the Dothraki Sea. Mine is the blood of the dragon. As was your brother's, he said stubbornly. I am not Viserys. No, he admitted. There is more of Rhaegar in you, I think, but even Rhaegar could be slain. Robert proved that on the trident, with no more than a warhammer. Even dragons can die. Dragons die, she stood on her toes to kiss him lightly on an unshaven cheek, but so do dragon slayers. This passage is a good example of the way that Danny blends confidence, determination, and sense of destiny with realism, caution, and wisdom. She's simultaneously expressing quiet confidence while also keeping Jorah's words in context based on her accurate assessment of his bias uh, in this area. The way she handles Jorah throughout the book and the next is really skillful, to be honest. She sees his flaws and his desire for her very plainly, and she's angry with him at times, but still, like I said, listens to his advice when, and at, even asks him smart questions, you know, knowing when to rely on him and how to factor in his bias. And, you know, it's subtle, but this is someone Danny has no choice but to work with for the time being, and so she does the best that she can, and she does pretty well. And even more than Danny's determination, her loss of innocence is kind of what jumps out to me here. Mm -hmm. she's, she's saying, hey, I may be 15, but I'm no child. Look at what I've been through. And it's certainly true that kids who face hard times do tend to grow up faster in certain ways, and Danny was basically left with no choice but to grow up fast, especially after Drogo died and leadership and the burden of survival fell solely on her. She had, like I said, she had to figure it out on the fly. So there was no longer anyone shielding her from anything. No Drogo, no Viserys, no Sir Willem Derry, no House with the Red Door, no Illyrio's Mansion, no Huge Kalisar, no Grassy Sea. She's taken on the mantle of leadership with her ragged little band, and frankly, she's already doing a better job than most people with power that we see in A Song of Ice and Fire. So Dragon Slayers, it should be noted, can go straight to hell. If this is foreshadowing, I take it to mean that Danny will personally put an end to anyone who slays one of her dragons, be it Euron or a White Walker or Bronze Ragged Ass. <laughs> if that happens, I doubt it. Probably not. Um, okay, so, hey, Tubbs, I'm going to have to ask you to rein it in there, buddy, because when you're just saying Danny loves to hear the screams, that's not based on anything in the books. There's no time at which she loves to hear the screams, so. I don't know if you're confusing book canon and show canon, but we're clearly here to talk about the book canon. So I feel like you're just antagonizing people. So please, you know, chill. It's all good. And if you are going to argue, then at least come with examples from the books. I'm definitely not here to whitewash Danny, um, but she does not enjoy violence. She doesn't revel in it. There's not a single mm -hmm. moment that that happens. So I just had yep. to say that. In any case, Danny's third chapter has her searching for help in Karth, like we said. And this gives us the first taste of Danny speaking of vengeance. So again, we're not here to whitewash. We're here, we're looking at everything that she has to do with violence. And here she is talking about vengeance, which is a little different than defense. 
So let's check this passage out. Zara was trying to talk her out of retaking Westeros. This iron throne you speak of sounds monstrous cold and hard. I cannot bear the thought of jagged barbs cutting your sweet skin. The jewels in Zara's nose gave him the aspect of some strange glittery bird. His long, elegant fingers waved dismissal. Let this be your kingdom, most exquisite of queens, and let me be your king. I will give you a throne of gold, if you like. When Karth begins to pall, we can journey around Heti and search for the dreaming city of the poets, to sip the wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull. I mean to sail to Westeros and drink the wine of vengeance from the skull of the usurper. She scratched Rhaegal under one eye, and his jade-green wings unfolded for a moment, stirring the still air in the palanquin. So Danny does seem to have some level of personal animosity for Robert the Usurper. That's when we kind of see her get like a little angry um, in a way that's like, again, not purely about her children. And I think that's because the idea of the Usurper has been associated with like the cause of her being on the run. The, her entire life they've been on the run and Viserys just says, oh, because of the Usurper, the Usurper. So he essentially stands for her eviction from her home. Mm-hmm. And we know how important that is to her. So there's some personal animosity here. Um, but at the same time, she's actually really just doing wordplay here. Mm-hmm. Like, Zaro says, drink the wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull. And so she spins it around and says, well, I want to drink the wine of vengeance from Robert's skull. So she's not, like, frothing at the mouth. Um, but nevertheless, like I said, I want to present everything that has to do with her use of violence and power. And so she is talking about vengeance here. And when we get to A Dance with Dragons she does take specifically revenge. Like when she nails the slavers and crucifies Mm -hmm. them, that's revenge. You could call it justice, um, but she wrestles with it. You know, she thinks, I felt like an avenging dragon, but was this really justice? Was did I, you know, so there's definitely, we're meant to question that just as Danny does. And there are a couple Uh, things like Robert, we have to remember Robert is also the one who tried to murder her unborn child. So it's not just animosity for Robert representing being kicked out of her home, but like Robert is specifically the king who sent the poisoner to try and kill her and her unborn baby. So I think that adds to the layer of very personal animosity because for Danny, one of the worst things you can do, the way to get Danny fired up is to try and threaten one of her children, either literal or like analogical. Anyone she considers her child, if you threaten them, like that's how Danny gets pissed off and he tried to kill her unborn baby so um also he's already dead um at this point so she's not like threatening to murder him she's just saying like i his skull would be like again the wordplay and also he's already dead so it's just like i guess i'll desecrate his body but i also have to say for all the people who talk about making skulls into wine cups i'm like a skull would actually be a really shitty wine cup people like too many holes it's just gonna like you're gonna spill everywhere and there are better things to make into a wine cup than a human skull. That just seems weird. Um, yeah, also, that was a really good point, Guilty Undertaker. Good question. Do we think that Danny will ever learn that Ned tried to stop Robert? I don't know. Um, I don't know who she would learn that from. Uh, I suppose Barristan could be someone who would tell her that. I'm trying to think of who else would be around that would know and be interested in telling her. Tyrion. Oh. And somebody pointed out that Tyrion suspects uh, Fagon to be fake, too. So it's possible he could tell Danny that as well. Right. Right. Yeah, he's got his doubts. In fact, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, because Danny, her realization of how bad King Ares was 
has been pretty slow rolled. Like George is mostly saving it. Mm -hmm. She's only heard a little bit about it from Barristan. I feel like Tyrion might dump that one in her lap, huh? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, Tyrion's got a lot of juicy tidbits that he can drop in her lap about the past that she doesn't know. He could give her a lot of information that would help her to make decisions or that he could use to try and manipulate her because it wouldn't surprise me if he tries to pull with her what he's been doing with um, Young Griff. Fagon. Fagon, yep. Yeah. Yep. Young Griff. Young Griff sounds all rugged. It does sound. It does sound like true. But when you flip, when you Western. flip the chessboard over and throw a tantrum, you get to be Fagon. <laughs> My name is Fagon. I was all waiting right. for you to do that when you mentioned Fagon earlier. I was like, wait, like counting down in my head, and you didn't do it, but you did it now. So I'm carrying black steel. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so okay. So there's a little bit of vengeance talk. Um, now later in the third chapter, Danny thinks about the possibility for the dragons to cause civilian casualties in Westeros, Ooh. which is certainly noteworthy. In the quiet of her chambers, Danny stripped off her finery and donned a loose robe of purple silk. Her dragons were hungry, so she chopped up a snake and tried the pieces of her brassiere. They are growing, she realized, as she watched them snap and squabble over the blackened flesh. They must weigh twice what they had in Vase Toloro. Even so, it would be years before they were large enough to take to war. And they must be trained as well, or they will lay my kingdom waste. For all her Targaryen blood, Danny had not the least idea of how to train a dragon. So this kind of goes to what I was saying about the way that Danny will view the people of Westeros in King's Landing. She'll view them as her people. And to the extent that Danny imagines herself the rightful ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, that means that she will take responsibility for the well-being of the people, just as she has for everyone that she's ever claimed to be under her protection. She's already thinking about how much violence might be involved in retaking Westeros, about how to wield weapons of war like the dragons or the Kalasar without decimating the land and its citizenry. So it's hard to imagine her transforming into the person that we saw on the show who seems to care nothing for mass civi civilian... Civilian! God damn it! <laughs> it's hard to imagine her transforming into the person we saw on the show who seems to care nothing for mass civilian casualties and wanton slaughter of innocents by the time that she takes King's Landing. Specifically, Danny thinks about the damage that dragons can cause pretty constantly through the five books that we have so far. Civilian. 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 Did you just say wonton so slaughter? I did. Like wonton soup. Wonton soup. Wonton slaughter. Wonton slaughter. I said, yeah, wonton, sorry. No, it was just funny to me because it, it conjured a very funny picture in my head of like... <laughs> People throwing soup at each other. Just like throwing like wontons at each other, like instead of like. Well, it's honestly, it's kind of like the vision she saw of the Red Wedding, you know, leg of lamb scepter. Yeah, yeah. Instead of like throwing stones. Wonton slaughter. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what that is. It's the Red Wedding is wonton slaughter. <laughs> okay. After Jorah learns that Zara wants to marry Danny because she would be obligated to give him a dragon, like we said, on the wedding night due to the Carthian marriage custom of gift giving, there's a funny line which sums up. Danny's Carthine arc, and it says, Danny nibbled at an onion and reflected ruefully on the faithlessness of men. That's pretty much it. <laughs> so, more to the point, Danny's concept of destiny and retaking Westeros. She discusses the reliability and loyalty of Illyrio and what they should do next, having seemingly struck out in Carth as far as raising an army or fleet. So, keep in mind that Danny is playing devil's advocate a bit here with Jorah as she often does, to draw people out and test their arguments. 
Oh my gosh, Harrison Grand Williams just said wonton slaughter, like chop suey. <laughs> he also said ain't gone earlier. Ain't gone. You you have great wordplay. You really, really do, Harrison Grand Williams. I enjoy your wordplay. Keep it up. Keep doing it. My man. All right. Illyrio believes in no cause but Illyrio. Gluttons are greedy men as a rule, and magisters are devious. Illyrio Mopatis is both. What do you truly know of him? I know that he gave me my dragon eggs. He snorted. <laughs> if he'd known they were like to hatch, he would have sat on them himself. That made her smile despite herself. Oh, I have no doubt of that, sir. I know Illyrio better than you think. I was a child when I left his manse in Pentos to wed my son in stars, but I was neither deaf nor blind, and I am no child now. Even if Illyrio is the friend you think him, the knight said stubbornly, he is not powerful enough to enthrone you by himself, no more than he could your brother. He is rich, she said. Not so rich as Zaro, perhaps, but rich enough to hire ships for me, and men as well. Sellswords have their uses. Sir Jorah admitted, but you will not win your father's throne with sweepings from the free cities. Nothing knits a broken realm together so quick as an invading army on its soil. I am their rightful queen, Danny protested. You are a stranger who means to land on their shores with an army of outlanders who cannot even speak the common tongue. The lords of Westeros do not know you and have every reason to fear and mistrust you. You must win them over before you sail, a, a few at least. And how am I to do that if I go east as you counsel? He ate an olive and spit out the pit into his palm. I do not know, Your Grace, he admitted, but I do know that the longer you remain in one place, the easier it will be for your enemies to find you. The name Targaryen still frightens them, so much so that they sent a man to murder you when they heard you were with child. What will they do when they learn of your dragons? Drogon was curled beneath her arm, as hot as a stone that has soaked all day in the blazing sun. Rhaegal and Viserion were fighting over a scrap of meat, buffeting each other with their wings as smoke hissed from their nostrils. My furious children, she thought, they must not come to harm. The comet led me to Carth for a reason. I had hoped to find my army here, but it seems that will not be. What else remains? I ask myself. I am afraid, she realized, but I must be brave. Come the morrow, you must go to Payette Pri. So... Thank you, Gretchen. Very well read. Jorah and Danny, they'll come back to this discussion in the first A Storm of Swords chapter, when they decide to change course and sail Illyrio's ships to Slaver's Bay instead of Pentos. We'll talk about that next time when we talk Storm of Swords. But uh, it is interesting to note that this question of being accepted in Westeros is being raised at this early point in her story, and it goes along with all the other thinking she does about what conquest of Westeros really means. And the other thing is that she's shifting her goal of what she can accomplish in Karth. Having realized there's no army or fleet here, she's instead seeking magical guidance as to her destiny, essentially. That's why she goes to the Warlocks, because although she knows she can't trust them, she recognizes that they have magical power and knowledge, and knows that she needs some of that too, in addition to an army. She's pretty open to mysticism at this point in her life, having had prophetic visions and performed miracles herself, that's what would make you a believer, and of course having seen the power of Miriam Azdur. Danny trusts herself to navigate the hazards of untrustworthy people the entire time she's in Karth, and she does so once again with the Warlocks. Good thing she brings Drogon with her. We probably have to call that good judgment on her part. Lock up your wolf? Get assassinated. Keep your dragon close? Burn Warlocks. That's the lesson here, clearly. Hey, Dee Dee Volano. How you doing there, Dee? 
See, someone does a super chat and I can put it up on the screen. Look how cool that is. What do the commoners of Westeros think of Targaryens? Well, that's a good question. Um, they've not, I mean, it's, it's all over the map. It seems like it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, a lot of people don't like Ares, but people thought highly of Rhaegar. And people can remember Jaehaerys. So I'd say that it's probably a pretty mixed bag. Um, the idea that Fagon's going to be cheered by crowds indicates that it is possible for a Targaryen to be popular. At the end of the day, I think Jorah's right. The people don't really care. It's all about their well-being. Like, if things are getting better, then fine. It's a Targaryen. Like, whatever, you know. It's all about rain and bread and stuff. Right. Where is that? Oh, gosh. I feel like that's mentioned somewhere, either in Dunkin' Egg or in the actual books, where someone has that kind of comment about how, like, the small folk don't really care it's Jorah in A Game of Thrones. We okay. actually read it last time. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew it was fresh in my memory. Yeah, the common people, they, they don't care. They pray for rain and, you know. Right. Like, yeah, so. Right. Uh, Danny's fifth and final chapter has her assessing the aftermath of burning the House of the Undying and generally striking out in Karth, and Danny once more ponders her destiny and future path. It was not by choice that she sought the waterfront. She was fleeing again. Her whole life had been one long flight, it seemed. She had been running in her mother's womb and never once stopped. How often had she and Viserys stolen away in the black of night, a bare step ahead of the usurper's hired knives? But it was run or die. Zaro had learned that Pyat Pri was gathering the surviving warlocks together to work ill on her. So another thing to note here is that she's chewing on the prophecies of the Undying. She's thinking about the three treasons, uh, that the first traitor was surely Miriam Asdor, who had murdered Khal Drogo and their unborn son to avenge her people. Could Pyat Pri and Zarzo and Daxos be the second and third? She decides they probably are not, but then goes on to consider all the other threes that were spoken of, thinking, child of three, they had called her, daughter of death, slayer of lies, bride of fire. She's pondering the meaning of the three heads has the dragon, and then this leads to a conversation with Jorah about Aegon having two other dragon riders when he conquered Westeros. She runs through some of the other bits, even explaining to Jorah that a mummer's dragon is a cloth dragon on poles used by mummers in their follies, and eventually lands on the vision of Rhaegar. She even asks Jorah, what is the song of ice and fire? Which is kind of almost fourth wall breaking, but still kind of fun. And he says, no song I've ever heard. So all this is notable simply for the fact that she's trying to understand these prophecies as she does Quaid's cryptic advice. Danny ultimately needs to understand prophecy and magic in order to fulfill her destiny of taking the fight to the others, I think. If you're going to imagine yourself the chosen instrument of destiny, it's good to be thoughtful, cautious, considerate, and so and so on. Hold on, I gotta mute this. All right, there we go. So this trait that she has of pausing to consider may come in handy when that moment I was talking about comes, that she's got to see through the trap of trying to use her dragons to conquer Westeros, uh, as opposed to going north. This kind of reflection that we see here might cause her to have that aha moment when she realizes that <clears throat> her purpose lies north at the wall, battling enemies armored in ice alongside her blue rose friend, Jon Snow. Yeah, it's interesting that once again, because we see this a lot, where Danny and Jon, I think, are going to be, their main foil is going to be Aegon in the coming books. Because what you just said about like being thoughtful, cautious, and consider if you imagine yourself the chosen instrument of destiny, and like that is the opposite of Aegon. Like Aegon was raised to like 
have totally internalized that and be self-important and arrogant and think really highly of himself like oh yes i am the true heir of you know westeros and i'm you know this is my destiny and this is my birthright here i come to save the day right and then you have both john and danny who are also you know claimants or heirs to the targaryen throne and yet neither one of them was raised with this kind of mentality both of them were kind of raised as outcasts and not really having a place to belong and and aegon nominally was but didn't actually internalize that kind of mindset that we see both john and danny have that like what makes them a good leader is the choices that they make to protect their people and not because like they deserve it. Like Danny believes in magical destiny, but she believes that her magical destiny has to be like she has to do something to prove herself in some sense like worthy of her magical destiny rather than just embracing it as like, "Ah oh, yes, well I can do whatever I want because I'm the, I'm the true queen and the red comet told me so and I've got dragons and so I can just do whatever." Like it makes her more thoughtful and reflective rather than less. Um, which I think we see with someone like Aegon. Flips the chessboard over. Pick up my pieces, dwarf. I am very unhappy. <laughs> that is kind of the voice. He sounds very petulant in my head. A little bit. Kind of like Joffrey does. Just kind of like they just have this whiny, like, <laughs> Good call, good call. So, Danny's last A Clash of Kings chapter closes with the Barristan and Belois scene when they arrive in Carth. They foil the manticore. They also deliver to Danny news that Illyrio has sent her three ships. The plan is to take her to Pentos and then Westeros. And I'm actually going to skim through this one. It's super long. We don't actually need to read all of it. So um, they basically say, We were told to find you and bring you back to Pentos. The seven kingdoms have need of you. Robert the Usurper is dead and the realm bleeds. When we set sail from Pentos, there'll be four, there were four kings in the land and no justice to be had. So joy bloomed in her heart. Danny kept it from her face. I have three dragons and more than a hundred in my calisar. And they're like, don't worry. The fat man hired three ships for his little silver hair queen. That's Belwis there with that. Um, and uh, Arston confirms, you know, they've got three uh, cogs anchored in the harbor there, which is where they're walking around on the docks. And Danny thinks, ah, three heads has the dragon. Wondering, um, you know, hey, look, three. You know? She's thinking of all the prophecies, you know, while, while, right before this happens. So. Then she says, I shall tell my people to make ready to depart at once, but the ships that bring me home must bear different names. As you wish. What names would you prefer? Vagar, Meraxes, and Balerion. Paint the names on their holes in golden letters three feet high. I want every man to see them to know the dragons are returned. So once again, we see George giving us the familiar elements that make up Danny's evolving sense of what it means, you know, what her destiny is. We've got her draconic identity, the people of bleeding Westeros being in need of justice, and the idea that Westeros represents the fulfillment of Danny's quest for home and belonging. Danny's thinking, uh, Danny's thinking here is we can follow it. So it's like three heads has the dragon, three dragons have I, and now three ships have I. Westeros has four feuding kings and no justice, which, by the way, is a callback to the House of the Undying, where we see four rat-faced dwarves ravaging the woman who represents Westeros, and she just saw that vision and is thinking about those visions. So then Danny starts, um, you know, as she, if you, and actually a side point here, and tell me what you think about this, Gretchen. I just sort of jammed this in last night as I was doing the review of the script. But I think about the fact that the woman uh, that is being attacked by the dwarves that represents Westeros is a woman because Danny 
started her string of adopting and protecting people as her children by protecting women that were suffering violence specifically. And so then we have this idea that the land of Westeros is a woman suffering violence. Like this is really, this, this is going to resonate with me, right? Yeah, I like that. And to tie into the question about mother goddesses and Danny representing like uprising, wrath of nature, revenge right. against cruelty. usurpers, dogs, or crows. I mean, that's the whole idea of the feast for crows. Is the right. land itself is the feast for the crows? Right. Um, so Danny's already thinking in that way, and so yeah, if you add in the House of the Undying vision, like, yeah, totally, I love so, that. So I guess if you want to say like, what's the point of Danny's mother goddess stuff? Well, there's lots of points, but if if as Harrison Grand Williams is saying, if this is a, basically a portrayal a portrayal of Mother Gaia as the land that's suffering, mm-hmm. Danny makes a very good avatar for a defender of that yep. land. So yep. perhaps that's, that's what we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Certainly if she takes her dragons to fight the others, then we can, we can see that. Um, and if, and she's, she's really strongly associated with land. Like, think about the fact that, I mean, growing up among, among the Dothraki, like her first articles of clothing that we see her wear, other than the silks at her wedding, are like leather and the lion pelt like she's got a lot of nature hmm. imagery associated with her especially in her early chapters um like literally wearing fabrics that are made from i mean cotton and silk are too but like leather has a much more visceral we think of leather as being much more like primal if you want to put it that way it's closer to the land than you know wearing like dyed hand dyed silks and things there's a lot of Um, flowers in her storyline too flowers mm -hmm. are used almost like sansa's dresses are as a convenient symbolic sort of foil danny's always doing stuff with flowers so there might be something to look at there right right there might be some um yeah some like nature goddess um i was immediately thinking of like demeter and persephone um persephone is a goddess of spring and I think she has a flower crown, but yeah, that idea of, yeah, flowers. Good. Awesome. I love that. Cool. Right on. Well, that is pretty much it, and we're obviously over two hours here, so we've got a good long thing. I I do have the undying visions here at the end, and I'm trying to look here and see what it was that, there was like one or two things really that I wanted to mention, that was about it. Um, So the first two visions are the woman with the, the rat dwarves, you know, attacking her. The second one is the Red Wedding. So I noticed both of those are communicating the, the message that Westeros is in chaos. The people, mm-hmm. it's a bleeding realm. So it's just an, another point on that. It's a, it's a theme that's running through. Because, again, it's very convenient for Danny to believe that she needs to help everybody, you know, from all this war. And there may be some truth to that, but there, that also may be a little bit of a trick, too. So we, do, we have to follow that train of thought. Mm-hmm. And the other one 
is, let's see, um, there's a reminder of her sense of home, because if you remember, she sees the um, house with the red door in Bravos with the lemon tree. She sees Sir Willem uh, saying something, that little princess, there you are. And she's thinking about how warm and nice he is. But mm-hmm. then she remembers that he's dead. So it's basically just a reminder of home and where she comes from. Um, then we have, she sees a scene of, her mad, of the Mad King, her father, which she doesn't really understand at the moment, but I assume will come back to her mind later as she's told stories of the Mad King. She, she sees him in the throne room saying, um, let him be the king of ashes, let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, which is an allusion to the caches of wildfire. Um, so there could be a little foreshadowing. You know, Drogon shrieks, Right after they talk, right after that line about let him be the king of ashes. So perhaps this is foreshadowing that. Because mm. it works as a portrayal of like Danny coming into conflict with her dad's legacy. Mm-hmm. It's something she's going to have to confront, is the misrule of her father. So setting off the wildfire caches accidentally is kind of like a personification of that, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Which is why I love and would prefer it to be accidental because there's so much more potential for internal conflict. Um, the human heart and conflict right. when she didn't do it on purpose, but she still, in some sense, like accidentally fulfilled her father's dying wish, but not on purpose. And that's going to make her like really, if that's what happens, she's going to, I mean, it would be like Hazea times a million. And probably I think she'll be viewed negatively. People yes. might call her the Mad Queen. Yep. Um, and that, again, this, you could see these working to catalyze her to figure out, like, what do I really have to do? You know, mm-hmm. I thought this was my destiny. And then along comes Jon Snow. Well, actually, there's these ice demons that uh, really could use melting. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, yes, that dream right. of melting people with dragons. I remember that. They weren't people. They were ice people. Right, because she's already questioning. We see her in A Dance with Dag- Dragons already starting to question, like, what is, are dragons good for anything? That's the whole reason she changed that changed them up in the pyramids is because she's starting to question whether or not dragons can actually have a good a good use in the world. And yeah, along comes John to be like, Hey, I got one for you. There's a giant army of dead ice people, and you know what burns really well? dead bodies and ice melts so yeah I, I really didn't buy the whole like night king isn't burned by dragon fire it's like what's the bloody point then like <laughs> but guilty undertaker says it's also a warning of the past she could tread if she's not careful so right. obviously it is that and right after um the vision of Ares, she sees the vision of Rhaegar, which is giving you the little bit of the like the double-sided coin you know the the madness and the the not madness if you will but Rhaegar could be seen as a different kind of temptation also, another kind of path that she can follow. Mm. Because Rhaegar uh, was thinking about prophecy, it seems like, exclusively when he made his decisions. And ultimately, he misread something and, and you know, led to his doom. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what we needed to fulfill the prophecy down the line or whatever. But point is, there's also a snare there for her to, like, buy too much into her own destiny. You get a sense that Rhaegar may have done that. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm pretty. It seems pretty clear that he believed his own hype or his own self. Seems I must hype. be a warrior because it turns out I'm in this book of prophecy. Yeah, yeah, totally about me. Like, if you're gonna go into a book of prophecy and assume it's about you, I feel like that's it.
And there's a connection being drawn. Like she's seeing her brother with a baby. And so when she hears about Fagon later, she'll think of this vision. Right. And she'll feel connected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing that's happening here. I um, think that one's going to be tragic. Because Fagon's not... I have wondered if maybe like Fagon is the... Before we knew about King Bran, it's like, well, maybe Fagon just is the king. And that'll be funny. Like he's not the real destined one, but he gets to be king. And Jannie and John have to go do the magic stuff. But... It's going to be King Bran, so. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, then we have the Splendor of Wizards, the fake Great Empire of the Dawn, gemstones, speckled hats, or pointy hats speckled with stars, all, you know, music, surpassing loveliness, a perfect Carthine breast, as perfect as a breast could be, all this stuff. <laughs> and they're promising to uh, teach her the, not, uh, the language of dragons, and saying that we sent the comet a thousand years ago to show you the way. We've been waiting all this time. So it's, it's the Undying's biggest temptation for Danny. Um, but she is, a, the point I want to make here is that she's not so entranced by it that she doesn't notice the hidden door behind the open door. And this again is Danny almost walking into a trap and then going, wait a minute, and sidestepping. It's and- a trap! And taking the right hand, so trap, and then taking the right path. So again and again, George is showing us Danny's ability to navigate snares and tricks and come through on the other side, even if she does need a little help from Drogon once in a while. That's okay. I was just thinking earlier that, um, and it me quoting Star Wars reminded me that like elements of the House of the Undying Vision kind of remind me of both Luke and Ray's like cave, cave visions, especially the like Vader Luke. Because um, as, um, was a Guilty Undertaker who was saying that, like, it's a, it's a warning against what she could become. Which is what, you know, when Luke goes into the cave and Empire Strikes Back and he sees, like, himself as Vader, it's a vision warning him that, like, he could be tempted to fall to the dark side. Like, he could become another Vader if he's not careful. So, yeah, her seeing Mad King Ares and even Rhaegar is like, this is what you could be if you're not careful. You could, you know, believe your own hype. And, you know, be so, be chasing down prophecies so much that you're kind of heedless to the current events around you and what that means for the kingdom. You could forget the kingdom for the sake of a prophecy, or you could, you know, go mad with power and, you know, decide that because you have dragons and, you know, are presume yourself to be the rightful heir, that you have the right to just, you know, burn people and do whatever you want. Like, those, are, I think you're right that those are both potentially dangerous paths for Danny because she is set up to she could be set up to go down either one of them. And, like, people think about her going mad, you know, mad king. But it is interesting that you point out that Rhaegar is another form of temptation for her of, like, being so fixated on prophecy. Because that's what Rhaegar did, I think. He got so fixated on the prophecy, he didn't stop to think about what was actually going on in Westeros at the time and whether or not what he was doing was wise or if there would be implications or, you know. So that's interesting. I like that point. So D. D. Villano says, I get by with a little help from my dragons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get high with a little help from my dragons. Yeah, that too. Yeah. But uh, very nice. He definitely fly really high. I thought earlier, earlier there was a quote I read that said her life had been one long flight. And I was like, hey, hey dragon joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't wait to do a Q&A now that I know I can do this thing with the comments. This is going to be fun. That's awesome. Going to make Q&As a little more fun. All right. And then so so just what you were saying as far as Rhaegar and, um, and uh, Mad King Ares representing false paths. We also see uh, a shout out to Rhaego after Danny navigates to the, the real undying, you know, the, the blue husk ghosts and the blue heart and all that. She gets a bombardment of images there. And I'm just going to read this paragraph, or at least the first part of it. Then phantoms shivered through the murk, images and indigo. Viserys screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water and with his last breath murmured a woman's name. So that was a triplet. It was Viserys, Rego, and Rhaegar. And those are three failed dragons. Mm. Three people that could have been the last dragon but weren't. And instead it's going to be Danny. So we should think about those mm. three failures. Viserys was a fool. Rhaegar, we talked about. Rego, the stallion that mounts the world, his whole future identity was wrapped around burning cities. He was going to be the dragon Kal who couldn't be stopped and would conquer the world. That was what the prophecy was. And think of Drogo declaring that he's going to rape everyone and tear down the stone houses. Like, that's, that's the Dothraki idea of conquest. So that's what Rego represents, and that's why we see a burning city behind him. This is a path that Danny doesn't want to go down. This is another example of that. So then we see glowing like a sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who casts no shadow, high Stannis. A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. Hi, Fagon. My name is Fagon. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. Hello, Euron. This is my idea now. We used to think that this was another Fagon line because the smoking tower um, and a great stone beast, the great stone beast could be the, the grayscale John Con or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think the smoking tower is allusion to Hightower um, and Old Town and whatever horrible magic I think, you know, this could be, it could be um, Euron calling the dragon to him with the horn magic somehow, or it could be some, I don't even want to go, but it, I think this is, that's a Euron line. So these are three people she's going to have to contend with, Stannis, Fagon, and Euron. These are also three false Azor High people, mm. Stannis, Fagon, and Euron. Um, so there's that, and... Oh, and then the last bit. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. Shout out to her past. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. So here comes the gray joys. And then a blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. So that's like her journey, starting with the Dothraki Sea, the trip back to Westeros with the gray joys, and then meeting John. The blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. And that again tells me that that is the conclusion of Danny's arc at the wall against the others with John. So hmm. that's how I read that. And uh, yeah, well, you want to pipe in? Uh, yeah. I mean, I love the the Euron as I really like Euron as that that third image because it never made as much. I don't know. It just felt weird to have two Fagon references and it's like in order because it seems like the images do provide you with three different things 
that you're you're supposed to see three different things at once. Martin's pretty good at being consistent about that. So I really like that. And of course, I'm a huge fan of, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about Euron and what we think Euron is, is doing and where it's going and Danny being the one to to contend against Euron and what that looks like uh, is pretty exciting. Um, who was it? Uh, Maud Mary spoke up in the chat and said the dragon has three failed heads, which <laughs> I liked as a response to your like the three failed heads of the dragon and the three different Asora high people, which are kind of two, they're two different ways of saying almost the same thing because the head of the dragon being an Asora high figure, like the usurping king, um, cause that's the thing that all of those have in common as well. Stannis and, or like the usurpation is part of it of all of the, is part of that king archetype there. Um, I've lost my train of thought. So. Yeah, I got distracted by the um, the uh, the Rago thirst that's going on here. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you type something funny in the chat, I can put you on the spot. This is great. I mean, it would be it would. I mean, he would be hot. Like the description of him is like, yeah. I mean, dragon people are pretty, and also he like like imagine Jason Momoa, but wearing like the Witcher wig. Don't get me started with The Witcher, all right? Because I will, <laughs> I will go through my entire Twitter timeline and screen share all of my Rhaegar at The Witcher memes, which slay, by the way, if you don't follow me on Twitter. Um, so, They're really good. Yeah. I enjoy them. So uh, the last bit of the Undying thing that's important um, is this sequence of basically mostly stuff that already happened to her, shadows whirling inside the Mirimaster tent, Little girl running towards a big house with a red door. Uh, red door. Miriam's door shrieking in the flames. A dragon bursting from her brow, which is Kali's symbolism specifically, by the way. Um, the dragging this uh, silver horse, dragging the bloody corpse of a man. That's the wine cellar. A white lion running through the grass, taller than a man. That's the Harakar, maybe a reference to Tyrion. Beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering. That is the one prophecy that's in here, like a future event. But I think that it's in here because. This is the Dothraki Sea plot basically coming back around. So mm, listing a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff that happened to the Dothraki Sea and then the capstone event that hasn't happened yet. Then it says, 10,000 slaves lifted blood-stained hands as she raced by on her silver, riding like the wind. Mother, they cried. Mother, mother. They were reaching for her, touching her, tugging at her cloak, the hem of her skirt, her foot, her leg, her breast. They wanted her, needed her, the fire, the life. And Danny gasped and opened her arms to give herself to them. So that is a good place to stop because it kind of encapsulates a lot of things. Um, the very concept of Danny's idea of leadership means you give yourself to the people. And that is what we see her doing over and over and over. You know, to the extent that she believes that it's her destiny to rule, this is what it means. It means opening herself up and giving everything she has, probably also a clue that her fate will be a self-sacrifice at the end. Um, you know, her fire and her life is being requested here. And guess what happens right after this? Drogon, of course, burns the undying others to a crisp. And I call them undying others because they're described as cold blue shadows, and they're gathered around a cold blue heart, which seems like a model for the heart of winter, and the others, which are cold shadows. And then we have Drogon burning them all. So this kind of just shows you, Danny. oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the bloody hands. Like, totally made me think of Danny freeing the whites 
which is something that like we've talked about that like Danny is a break she's the breaker of change she's the free of slaves and that the final slaves that she's going to free are the whites that are in, being enslaved by the others and talking about like all of the people with their bloody hands like the bloody hand trees and the weirwoods like I was like oh that's weirwood symbolism like you've got the people who are being like slave like tied to the weirwoods who are also slaves like screaming mother and like touching her and like feels very much like Danny sacrificing herself to free you know to destroy the others and free you know free the enslaved whites so they can, their spirits can pass on or whatever how yeah. happens after a thousand that, bloodstained hands is the very first description we get of the weirwood leaves when we first see the weirwood tree in the winterfell godswood so it's definitely weirwood symbolism and you're right it's also related to the whole idea of the whites who have bloody hands who are you know, I've said before that these will be, if she's freeing slaves all the way, the, the climax of that arc will be freeing the whites. And I'm actually going to mm-hmm. harp on that more, I think, in the last, um, in a future Danny thing. We're going to talk about the more mythical foreshadowing in context mm-hmm. of like the plot ideas that we have. And so, but yeah, it, it, could, it could be a hint that there's going to be some sort of weirwood element. But I think that's probably just what you said. The fact that the whites and the others are tied to the weirwoods. And to the extent that she's giving her fire up and then using mm-hmm. Drogon to burn the others, that's kind of the same idea. Like, that's how you free the whites. It's going right. to involve the destruction of the others. So you can see her destiny right here in the House of the Undying. And it's not going crazy and burning King's Landing. No. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's really not. It's not. People. Brendan Clownfish. It's not. It's not. It's not in the books. It's not predestined not going to happen. I really like am so ready for the reverse justification attempts to say that the show ending is foreshadowed in the books to stop. And that's kind of what we're doing here. I mean, I don't want to stop. I mean, we should have the debate, I guess, but I'm just saying this is this is my answer to that argument. Like if you're saying that the books foreshadow what we saw on the TV show, I'm saying that you haven't read Danny's chapters very closely. That's that's where I'm I mean, you can see what's here as we read it. I'm going, we're going kind of slow, and we're being methodical because I, I really want to get it all. I don't want to point out all of these scenes. And, uh, yeah, I guess I should get off my soapbox. <laughs> Save me. Yeah. Guilty Undertaker just brought up uh, his dark materials and Lyra freeing the dead to pass into everything, which that was something that, I, that I've been thinking of with Danny as being, like, the one who frees the souls that will pass on into the afterlife because when you think about the whites like or even the undead characters that we know like they are in some sense enslaved and trapped they're not free like lady cat you can't say that lady stoneheart is in any way like a free entity no what she needs is to like be allowed to die and pass on and that i think is what the whites need is to be, like, freed from their, like, eternal slavery as, like, flesh puppets and, you know, for whatever is left of the human beings that were inside before to be released. It's just going to make so So, much sense. Breaker of chains, you know. Slayer of lies. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyways. Yeah, because there's a lot of, like, the weirwoods trapping. Like, there's a lot of, like, trap imagery associated with the weirwoods and... um, like the the maesters as well is another good parallel because the maesters are like gray rats but they wear chains and so they're like slaves to their office as well there's a lot of thraldom slavery bondage Mm -hmm. themes 
And right. the breaker of chains is such an important part of her identity and what she does um, that, yeah, I, I think it's, again, I, it's, it's the whole like, so should I, am I freeing the people of Westeros by taking the throne? And it's like, well, no, I'm saving the people of Westeros by defeating the others. And on top of that, there'll be extra, I, you know, slave, freeing of the slave symbolism when she ends the threat of the whites and lets their souls go on to rest in the afterlife or whatever, so... There it is. I yeah. think that's... Sorry, folks. Uh, spoiler warning for his Dark Materials. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, they've been out for a long time, so I feel like if you haven't read them and you don't know how it ends, then... Uh, it's the kind of thing you, like, will quickly... You don't remember if you don't know the whole plot and stuff. I already forgot whatever right. it was you said, so... <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You already Not that forgot I'm the gold standard. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, gosh. Come on. <laughs> I know. I'm just No, but me. I do uh, probably a good place to stop and say thank you for joining me. Appreciate it very much. You specifically, yeah. Gretchen, and everyone else, but I was talking to you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Chat is always great. Yeah, Melanie I Lot 7's always... been, uh, she's like, kind of like to get, come on, I want to miss the action. So I'll get Melanie on here soon. Yes. Uh, now that I've got, again, now that I have powers of uh, having more than one people on at the same time. So, yeah. Yay. All right. Well, hey, everyone, thank you for joining me. And like I said, if you missed it, uh, we did the first one called uh, It Pleases Me to Hold Them Safe. And that was the A Game of Thrones Danny Chapters. This is A Clash of Kings. In two weeks, we'll do A Storm of Swords. And then two weeks later, we'll do A Dance with Dragons. And then I might do one more for like just all the magical foreshadowing and some of the other stuff. So we're going strong every other week for a few more weeks. And uh, yeah, so... That's what you have to look forward to. I'm having a ton of fun. Hope you guys had fun. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Gretchen. Uh, do you want to plug your plug your plugs? Oh, plug my plugs. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as uh, at GN Jones Writer. Uh, I am on YouTube as Baal the Bard. And yes, I'm going to be talking about Dance with Dragons things. I'm very excited to be diving into that. Um, my article about Ray and Danny is... I believe that what we're doing now on the fundamentals is that it's going to be subscriber only for the first month or two. Um, probably for a month, it will be a subscriber only content. So for like $3 a month, you can come and read it. Um, and then eventually it will become open to the public. But I'm going to be talking about Ray and Danny. And uh, I, I mean, that's that's what I'm doing and hanging out here. Cool. And there's so, the link. So yes. you can go check out all kinds of good stuff there. And I just recorded with your... Uh... Yes, we just had uh, Kylie and Julia, if people are familiar with uh, Unabashed Book Snobbery. They are... Um, Kylie and Julia are my fellow editors over at The Fundamentals. And they... The two of them and I have a podcast called The Fundamentalist. And we just had LML on to talk about The Rise of Skywalker. And we had lots of fun. We did a little script doctoring. We, we came up we with a, the whole thing of Stormtrooper Rebellion and... Oh man, I'm cool now. Stuff. I'm so sad that we didn't get Finn's Stormtrooper Rebellion. That just like <sighs> would have been so good, so good. There it is. And uh, let's see. Thank you, Mod Mary. Appreciate it. That's a that's a raging picture, Mod Mary. That's awesome. Look at that. Ooh, you yeah, like, I like it. You look like a fun person. All right, that's enough embarrassing people. But thank you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we will see you in two weeks. Go Vikings! I don't watch sports ball. Bye.
Bye.